Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W dot blogspot dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast dot store. That is the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. Also, please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. All right, folks, this is another installment in the Farms World Anti-Communist League series, or Wackle as it is known around these parts. And as this is a Wackle show, that means that the Wackle panel is with me today. In fact, I've got the entire menagerie with me this time around. The whole cast will be with me for both today's show and the final installment in the Wackle series as well. So let's introduce them now. First, there is my research partner, the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you, Recluse. It's good to be with you. Can can I do a plug here at the beginning? Oh uh, yeah, you, you want to pipe up your uh, your uh, recently released album, sir? Uh, I, I do. Uh, we did the podcast the first time last year. I just said I was some schlub out in the desert, and I let it slip that I'm a songwriter. And I've just released my third album, and it's called Liminal, and it's inspired by. Life on the Border, The Trickster and the Paranormal, Victor Turner, Little Jason Horsley, and uh, and you can find it at keithallendennis.bandcamp.com. And uh, I know that you've invited me to come on your podcast and talk about music instead of unreconstructed Nazi bastards, and I'm really here for it. Um, and I also just want to say that you can't spell myhop or lihop without ihop, and uh, I'll shut up now. <laughs> it is a great album, folks. You guys uh, should definitely consider uh, checking it out. Um, and yeah, I'm very much looking forward to doing that uh, particular music show with Keith here, hopefully in a uh, a couple of weeks. And uh, it also makes for a fascinating synchronicity for me as well with that whole liminal title. I suppose I maybe I'll get into that in the music show for you guys. All right. Also with us is the farm's resident Ukrainian specialist, Moss Robertson. Moss, thank you for dropping by today, sir. Yeah, thanks as always. I feel like I've learned so much from being a part of this um, from you guys. Um, and also for plugging things, uh, it occurred to me, I've never plugged uh, my Substack called the, the Bandera Lobby Blog. Uh, if you want to follow drama related to the present day OUN B networks. That's benderalobby.substack.com. Absolutely. And you do the best research out there in this whole situation, no doubt, sir. All right. Next up is the farm's resident ex-cultist, the Mooney defector, Don Diligent. Don, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. And is there anything you would like to plug? Well, I was just thinking about that. I, I don't think I've I've got anything on the table, but as soon as this series is done here, which is what we're doing, I'm going to be talking with this one guy that was born into the Moonies. He's got this really good podcast where he's already interviewing 
other kids that were born into the Moonies, but he's open to also talking with us old fogey guys that left the fold. So we've already had one good conversation, and uh, hopefully he's going to be interviewing me in the not-so-distant future. So it's, uh, it's, it's a plug in the making, we'll, we'll say. His name is Elgin Strait, uh, by the way, uh, and his podcast is called Falling Out. So if there's anybody out there that wants to get into more of the cult aspects of what I was involved with for pretty much my entire adult life, then uh, that would be a good place to go. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating, Don, and I'm um, definitely looking forward uh, to having you back here with the uh, the upcoming UFO series that we are going to be embarking upon, as there are some very fascinating uh, Mooney ties to all of that, and um, well, I know Keith has also got some special topics prepared for that show as well. All right, yep. and last, but certainly not least, we have the great John Brisson of We've Read the Documents. John, thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you for having me. Glad uh, glad to be among uh, such esteemed researchers and counsels. I'm glad to be back here on the farm, McClose. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you, sir. All right, so th for those of you who have somehow missed out on the prior six installments of the series and the appendixes, here is a brief recap. The World Anti-Communist League, or WACL as it's known around here, was the visible personification of the fascist international during its heyday. It was a motley crew of aging Nazis and collaborators, international drug and arms traffickers, various dictators and freedom fighters from the developing world, and numerous former military and intelligence officers, and finally, the inevitable cults and secret societies. It is a dark legacy and a stain upon these United States. If you are not moved by the litany of criminal activity this outfit was engaged in or its cozy relationship with right-wing extremists of various stripes, then please, please consider looking at pictures produced by one of the numerous Dirty Wars Wackle and their ilk sponsored the world over. The Cold War is erroneously named as such. It may have remained cold among the U.S., Europe, and the Soviet Union, but things were pretty boiling hot for much of the rest of the world. Literally hundreds of thousands of people, many of them little more than starving farmers looking for agrarian reform, were murdered by various militias that Wackel sponsored. This was the cost of the Cold War, and if you think that it was irrelevant, then please consider this installment because it is going to bring it all back home, both figuratively and literally. So... We now arrive in the 1980s. This was the absolute pinnacle of Wackel and its influence. To start off with, let's catch up with some of the players. Don, during our uh, Mooney podcast, you often referred to how William F. Buckley, uh, to the William F. Buckley Network, was aligning itself with the Mooney organization. Now, some researchers uh, like to use the term New Right to describe the Buckley Network during this era. The New Right, in turn, was seen as crucial to the rise of Reagan in these United States. How does the New Right uh, connect to the Moon organization as we enter into the 1980s, and where does Wackel fit into all of this? Well, uh, to begin here, it would be good to look at that term, uh, the New Right, and see where its origins come from. Uh, for many researchers, they pegged the beginning of that term going back to 1964 
that's the year Barry Goldwater suffered a humiliating loss in the presidential election. LBJ kicked his proverbial behind, shall we say. And that didn't set very well with William F. Buckley and his network. So it was at that time that a reorganization, shall we say, of the conservative right took place. And the new right, quote unquote, was born. Now, there are some who have determined that the new right has even earlier beginnings, going back to the Eisenhower years. And I do believe that there's a certain amount of credence to that. But at the end of the day, for our purposes here, I'm going to go with 1964 for the beginning of the new right. Now, from previous talks we've had, we know the significance of the direct male guru, Richard Vigory, uh, within the Buckley Network. He was one of the founders of the Young Americans for Freedom, YAF. And it was shortly after that Goldwater defeat that he formed his own company, Ravco, which specialized in direct mail marketing and fundraising for conservative nonprofit organizations. The Moonies, a.k.a. the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon, Bohe Park, and company, they were one of his first clients in 1965. And I'm pretty sure that that's not by coincidence. We've discussed the importance of 1028 Connecticut Avenue, downtown D.C. in previous shows, and it's there that Vigory is assisting the Moonies during those very early years in the U.S. We're talking Bohe Pak's Korean Cultural and Freedom Foundation. That's the organization that Vigory was working for. Now, moving ahead almost a decade, I speculated in our Mooney podcast that Gary Jarman, uh, a top anti-communist Mooney during the early 70s, I speculated that Jarman was sent underground quote-unquote, with the help of Vigory into the New Right Network. Now, I'm using the word underground. All I'm basically saying here is, as I've said before, is that I think Jarman officially cut ties with the Moonies, but was still working for the political aims of the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon, etc., after he cut his ties. From the tail end of 74 all the way to 1984, the year in which Jarman reemerges in terms of supporting Moon openly, um, it's that 10-year period I'm talking, 74 to 84, that we see Jarman just rising in the new right. And uh, just as a little side note, but it's kind of important here, many researchers... Uh, think that it's at the tail end of 74, Nixon having just been impeached, you know, leaving office because of the Watergate scandal. The, the, the conservatives, they, they again, at that time, the new right, in other words, they go through another reorganization process, very similar to what took place in 64, because it's in 74 that the National Conservative Political Action Committee, NITPAC, 
uh, founded by Terry Dolan. Uh, more on him later. Uh, you know, that that's a, a key thing to think that, you know, we've got a moment here where we have a reorganization again, and then Gary Jarman is right there, you know, at the beginning of that, so to speak. Um, also, I think it's good to note that Neil Salonen, the Mooney's top anti-communist guy, uh, Salonen actually sent a representative, a fellow Mooney, in other words, to that inaugural NICPAC conference. Okay. Uh, so moving along here a little bit, another thing that uh, I think we should have good perspective on is that between 74 and 84, the Moon organization was going through a bunch of controversy, being con uh, persecuted uh, for being a fanatical religious cult. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, sorry. I, I covered this to a great extent uh, in another talk. So what I want to emphasize here about that is that it was definitely not lost on the New Right Network or the Buckley Network that the Moon Organization was going through all this controversy. For one, uh, you know, the, the far-right conservative movement, you know, they, they just didn't want to get close to the Moonies during this time because of all the controversy. The newspapers and television networks, you know, were, were all over them uh, during this period, okay? Uh, albeit, that didn't stop, stop Buckley from inviting Salonen onto his firing line TV show in 77, that son of a bee, Teflon Bill, I guess I'm going to call him. I guess nothing was going to affect his reputation by by getting Salonen, you know, on on the air, like sitting right next to him. Anyway, I don't want to rant too much on that. But, you know, but Buckley actually, I mean, he didn't really defend Salonen on that show, per se. But I'm telling you, from the body language, for those who, who plan to see it or have seen it, whatever, you knew something was there under the surface, okay, in terms of what type of relationship Buckley had with Salonen, and I'll just leave it at that. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that it was not going to serve the purposes of the new right to show any outward support towards Moon, the Moonies, whatever, during this controversial time period, which covered basically a 10-year span between 74 and 84. So even though I've speculated that the New Right and Buckley's network were very much involved in getting the Moon organization its initial foothold into the U.S., okay, going all the way back to, you know, 1960, basically, these ultra-conservatives were still forced into this situation later, where they had to keep an arm's length from the Moonies. The New Right had strong Christians within it, after all, which meant they weren't going to condone religious cults, you know, plain and simple. Not right? yet, anyway. yeah. <laughs> you, you got something to say there, Keith? I was just going to say not yet, you know, but... Yeah, yeah right, not yet. Depends on how, right. big, how big the checkbook is, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. All right. So, so that's kind of a backdrop here, uh, so we can better appreciate 
just how important Gary Jarman is as we look at the new rights rise to prominence in this 10 year period I keep referring to. Um, and where, you know, at the end of it all, the new right's going to get its man in the White House, the Reagan revolution, you know, finally reaching its apex, shall we say. So what was Gary Jarman doing exactly between 74 and 84? Well, let me run down his credits here. He joins the American Conservative Union, the ACU, in late 74, soon becoming the ACU's legislative director. By 78, he becomes a founding member of the Christian Voice, along with Robert Grant, who's heading it up. And Jarman takes on the legislative director role in that organization as well. And he becomes the political lobbyist in DC for the Christian Voice. So now, here, 78, we've got Jarman, the legislative director for both the ACU and the Christian Voice. My understanding is that he's holding these positions simultaneously, okay? Then by 79, Jarman becomes executive director for another organization or, or a director for another organization. This time, the American Council for a Free Asia. And I find that quite significant. I'm going to tell you why. You'll never guess who's on the advisory board of this American Council for Free Asia. <clears throat> Actually, you might guess. It's Lev Dobriansky, who Moss and I have talked about almost ad nauseum in other podcasts. Dobriansky is on the advisory board advising Jarman. Now, digressing slightly, but only slightly, we know from a previous talk of mine that another top anti-communist Mooney, Joseph Sheftik, was leading the American Council for Captive Nations during the late 70s. And this organization almost surely, just for the mere fact that it's got, <coughs> excuse me, it has cap captive nations in its name, it's got to have connections with Dobriansky as well. Okay? And my research shows without question that Sheftik was working for the Mooney's FLF organization at the exact same time, he's heading up this apparent Dobriansky front group or ABN front group. It's almost one and the same, meaning ABN Dobriansky, right? You know, and, and this is all related, you know, to Wackle ultimately, right? So given all these facts, it simply can't be overstated just how important the connection is between Jarman and Dobriansky. It shows us, I think, in an in-your-face way how the ABN Wackle milieu was supporting not only Jarman's activities, <clears throat> but by extension, the anti-communist work of the Moon organization during this really controversial period for the Mooney cult. 
I mean, now now we're at a time. Now we're at 79, 78, 79. The the Jim Jones coal tragedy has just taken place, okay? Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Congress, because of what happened at Jonestown, the Congress convenes in 79 what I'm going to call the anti-cult committee that Bob Dole presided over, where the Moonies... Scientology and other cults had to defend themselves. So things were really bad for the unification church proper at this point. Okay. And if you if you don't mind me saying, guys, right at this time there's me, Don Diligent. I'm fundraising with my peanut brittle, 16 to 18 hours a day, raking in about two hundred dollars a day, seven days a week. I was the true blue Mooney. In fact, I was the best male fundraiser in my entire group. I was the model Mooney. Keith, I think you better stop me before I continue on with that. that anyway. peanut, that's a Cold War tax, right? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just, just sucking up that money from, from people on the streets <laughs> by the penny, by the dollar. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, let me get back on track here. Now, even with all this persecution swirling around the Unification Church during this time, the Mooney's Freedom Leadership Foundation, where Jarman originates from, is still moving forward in 79 full throttle. I even found a CIA declassified document showing that Sheftick and FLF were communicating directly with the CIA. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it is truly remarkable in a way how the Moonies were able to keep their anti-communist work in the U.S. moving forward during this tumultuous period. Not only that, the Japan operation, the Moonies in Japan, they basically didn't lose a beat during this time. For one, as I think I mentioned in our previous podcast, the Japan anti-communist group, those Japanese Moonies were attending all the Wackle conferences during these years. I mean, we're talking all the years where Roger Pearson and, and all the Nazi controversies happening. You know, the Japanese Moonies were there year after year through all that, okay? But what's truly astounding, I guess, is that, well, it is. I came across all these photos of Yaroslav Stetsko of ABN posing with top Japanese Mooney Osama Kaboki at all these Wackle conferences. These photos can be found in the ABN newsletter. I've sent some of you guys these photos, as you know. It it definitely brings new meaning to the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Don't you think, Moss? I mean, weren't you surprised to see all those photos of a top Mooney with Statsko? Oh, yeah. No, there's a lot of great ones. I mean, it's unbelievable, really. All right, let me start wrapping up my, uh, my answer, my little segment here. In 1980... Reagan gets elected, and the revolution is complete, so to speak. The new right has their guy in office. And by 1981, 
we have the establishment. Of course, this is John John's forte. We have the establishment of the Council for National Policy, which to me, this is my personal opinion, is the convergence of the new right with the religious right with wackle elements sprinkled in. That's how I like to look at it. And where it gets really interesting, I just recently discovered the archive of Jerry Falwell. And it's got no less than 60 entries for Gary Jarman. When you hmm. do a Gary Jarman search, I mean. And I'll tell you, it was, uh, did someone want to say something? No, I'm sorry, it's because of that Christian voice thing. But please keep going. I'm sorry, man. Yeah, no problem. Out of curiosity, how did that compare to the amount of references to Larry Flint? (laughs) To to, to who? Larry Flint. (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Yeah, you know, yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway. You know, Gary Jarman's all over the place in uh, in, in Falwell's uh, archive, and it, it was just fascinating to find all of Jarman's connections to the biggest players in the new right. You know, Paul Weirich, you know, Terry Dolan, who I just talked about, um, Vigory, of course, you know, and others. Um, but I would say the two best finds in that collection, at least for me, uh, were one, Jarman became a member of CNP in 1982. And that came on the recommendation of Timothy LaHaye, CNP's first president. And the second best find, I think, was that shortly after Jarman be- becomes a CNP member in 82, He gets recommended by Howard Phillips of the Conservative Caucus. Phillips recommends Jarman to be on the CNP Committee on Foreign Relations. Now, that's got to be connected to the American Council for a Free Asia, where Jarman and Dobriansky are. I just don't see how we don't make that connection. And by the way, and kind of kind of important here. In 1982, we also have the reemergence of what I'm going to call total American support for Wackle. That's mostly coming from the United States Council for World Freedom, you know, USCWF, which was basically, and I think Keith will agree with me, was basically just the recreation of the American Council for World Freedom. Yes. What what often gets overlooked, though, with the USCWF is that we focus a lot, and rightly so, we focus a lot on John Siglaw becoming its president. But what most people don't know or tend to forget is that the second and third leadership positions, <clears throat> they were actually held <clears throat> excuse me, by Ukrainian Americans, Lev Dobriansky and Walter Chopitsky. Now, we haven't, we have, sorry, we haven't spoken all that much, if at all, about Chopitsky during our Wackle series, but I know Moss would agree that he has been a significant player in the ABN network for years. Um, it, he's come across your path, right, Moss? 
Yeah, he was well on the board of the U.S. Council for World Freedom. He was, I think, the chairman of the national of the Captive Nations Committee in Arizona. I think he attended a bunch of WACL conferences. Um, there's this guy, Myron Kuropis, who was a columnist, still is. He's in his maybe nine, about 90 years old now um, for the Ukrainian Weekly. And he was writing an article once when I think Chopivsky died. He was acknowledging that he was an OUNB guy, but at least he worked with others, whereas he contrasted him with Lev Dobryansky as someone who was, I think, like, quote, firmly in the grip of the OUNB or something like that. Yeah. So they were both OUNB guys, but Dobryansky was, um, I think, more of a hardliner. And I think Chopivsky was actually from Ukraine, whereas Dobryansky was born in New York. Yeah. And very Americanized. Right. Yeah. So, um, so just to conclude here, by by '83, Timothy LaHaye, with the assistance of Gary Jarman, that that's in the archives of Falwell, they they found the American Coalition of Traditional Values. This is an organization that I that I I, I just got to believe it was to help further solidify the convergence of the new right with the religious right. And uh, and and by the way, remember, in all that I'm talking about here, Richard Vigory, you know, the man I'm claiming is the guy who took charge of inserting Gary Jarman into the new right in the first place. Vigory is is in the thick of things with all these things that I'm bringing up here, basically, while all this is progressing. So then now we're in 1984. The Coalition for Religious Freedom gets established. And this is when Gary Jarman finally reemerges, quote unquote, as an open supporter for Sun Myung Moon and his causes. Robert Grant, <clears throat> Jarman's boss at Christian Voice, he, along with Timothy LaHaye, Jerry Falwell and others, they were all overtly defending Sun Myung Moon's constitutional rights at this point. The CRF propped up Moon as a symbol of religious persecution, you know, due to Moon's incarceration for tax evasion. But man, I mean, how these Christian right luminaries confused religious persecution with bad bookkeeping practices? I mean, it's almost beyond me, but I digress. So for Moon's white collar crime, he gets put into a detention center in Danbury, Connecticut. To call it a prison is a bit of a stretch. Anyway, getting to my final point here, it was from that juncture, you know, 84, that the new right and religious right, etc., they began to openly support Moon and his organization. And then as we move to the late 80s, the anti-communist organization CAUSA, created by Bohee Pak, which was basically the successor to FLF. CAUSA got its start, as I mentioned in our last podcast, during the Bolivian cocaine coup, with all the wackle connections talked about there. Uh, and in the late 80s, CAUSA creates a Christian ministerial alliance, which would have been right in line with the religious right and the new right, and what they're doing, okay? And then the final Mooney Front Group to talk about, just to 
conclude this, is the American Freedom Coalition. It got established in 87, and many of its members were wackle related, new right, religious right related, so forth and so on. And both Robert Grant and Gary Jarman were very prominent in the AFC, taking their open support of Moon to the next level. And uh, with that, uh, I guess I'm going to throw it back to you, Recluse. I, I think that about covers it. That was great, Don. All right, Moss, uh, what was the OUNB and the captive nations groups up to at the onset of Reaganism? Um, I'm going to try to keep this short, uh, as short as I can. Um, but to just to break it up into a few different parts, um, I would say the OUNB, the um, ABN, the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, um, which is the basis of our first episode of the series, um, and then the Captive Nations uh, Lobby or Movement, um, which was formed around Captive Nations Week uh, in 1959, uh, which we discussed some in the um, the China Lobby episode. Um, in addition to this guy Lev Dobriansky, who um, Don and I keep bringing up, they were all, I think, at their height uh, uh, in the Reagan administration. And um, so we kind of also talked about this in the episode that we did kind of outside of this series um, around the election about Ukrainian, I think it was called Ukrainian Intrigues was the title of the episode. But the OUNB basically staged a coup in Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, um, which Lev Dobriansky was the president of for, I think, 10 consecutive terms. And so he oversaw this and basically greenlighted it. And then, um, in turn, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, um, with Dobriansky, got a number of people into the Reagan administration, um, and we talked about that. Um, but Dobriansky himself becomes the ambassador to the Bahamas in 1982, and then the following summer in 1983, which is the 25th annual Captive Nations Week, Yaroslav Stetsko, who was the leader of the OUNB since 1968 and was the uh, leader for life of the ABN and I think was on the executive board of the World Anti-Communist League and if I'm not mistaken at some point was re uh, replaced by his wife uh, Yaroslava or just Slava Stetsko and um, but the two of them the Stetskos visited DC uh, well they went to the White House uh, for Captive Nations Week in 1983 and they met Reagan, they met Bush, they met Kirkpatrick, the ambassador to the UN, um, who I think was a member of the Committee on the Present Danger, which I think Keith was talking about in the China Lobby episode. And um, yep. and so, anyways, it's it's kind it's like a propaganda coup basically that they got to go here. Um, it was apparently made possible in large pipe large part by uh, Catherine Chumachenko was her name then, who in the future became the first lady of Ukraine, um, having married uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who became president in 
but she was the executive director, the secretary of the captive National Captive Nations uh, Committee. She was a student of Dobryansky's at Georgetown, where she got a degree in international economics. Um, she later, when I think he died, called him uh, her mentor. And so, anyways, at this time, Dobryansky is very clearly kind of at the center of everything, even though I'm not sure that he was really... I, I I have doubts that he was a member of the OUNB, but he was, I think, definitely their key ally in the Ukrainian-American community. He was also, if not at this time, in the 70s, he was like the chair of the something called like the Ukrainian National Republican, the Federation of like Ukrainian Republicans or something. And so he was kind of, I mean, he definitely was, I think, the most in, important or influential uh Ukrainian-American in the Republican Party um, in those days. And so anyways, the Stetskos come to D.C., the White House, in the summer of 1983. And and it was said, Russ Ballant wrote this in his book, um, Old Nazis, New Right in the Republican Party, that Reagan told the Stetskos something like, your dream is our dream. in reality, that was like a speech he made during Captive Nations Week. and um, But right as Reagan was leaving the room, Yaroslav Stetsko managed to make his way and shake hands with him just as uh, just before he left. And um, But they got a picture of that and put it on the front of the ABN newsletter, and it was this propaganda coup that Reagan sang, your dream is our dream, as if he said this to Stetsko when they're shaking hands. Um and so uh, later, at the end of that summer, the New York Times started reporting on um, there was this like criminal financier. Apparently, he was well known. I'd never heard of him, um, Robert Vesco, um, and he had fled the United States some ten years earlier. And so, in September, the New York Times reported that um, this guy Robert L. Vesco quote, has been running a major cocaine and marijuana operation from a small island in the Caribbean for at least two years. And basically the FBI was going to do a sting operation. And then uh, Dobriansky as the ambassador uh, blocked it. And um, ostensibly because it was going to, the reason he gave is that, quote, such an arrest might upset negotiations for a Navy submarine testing base. In the islands, um, and then later in September, um, there was he quashed I think another FBI um, like sting operation that they were going to lure yeah a uh, quote influential Bahamas uh, how do you say someone from the Bahamas behind Bahamanian I don't even know how to, uh, yeah but Bahamanian. Yeah. Keith, you're going to have to take that. Bahamian, Bahamian yeah. So an influential Bahamian official onto a boat. And so, and it was all going to be filmed. Dobryansky nixed that. He then nixed um, something, that, a separate thing. The DEA, the DEA had an undercover operation with the, with the Miami office with the, uh, with the IRS. Dobryansky stopped that. Um, and it would have, involved some with a, a phony bank to trap money launderers. So then later in 1989, um, the committee, the Senate's Committee on Foreign Relations had a subcommittee on terrorism, narcotics, and international operations. Um, 
chaired by John Kerry at that time, the subcommittee, and they produced a report that says, uh, with the appointment of a new ambassador, um, Dobriansky, U.S. Bahamian relations focused on base rights negotiations, and the drug issue was relegated to a much lower priority. Um, and so just with everything we know about wackle and drug stuff, um, you know, to me, I think this is very suspicious. And um, interesting, just because Dobriansky, you know, I don't know him to have been someone who was uh, engaged in criminal activity, but um, the OUNB was basically operated like this gang. And uh, and so, you know, it, it's, you know, and Dobryansky's this guy's wearing, you know, the pin, uh, what do you call it, the pinstripe suits and smoking cigars. And it's like, I, I just feel like maybe he, he was, uh, maybe he felt like a gangster at some point. Um, but anyways, they definitely peaked, I think, during the Cold War. Um, when Reagan was president. And, I mean, there's more I could say about that, but um, I think that'll do it. But, oh, I'll, I'll just say, I think it really is all connected to the prestige of the World Anti-Communist League with the Reagan administration. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that Singlaub um, was standing next to Reagan um you know, when he is making this Captive Nations Week speech in 1983 and Yurosav and Savastetska were sitting in the front row. Um, it's like, I think Singlaub indirectly, you know, created a lot of access for the ABN and by extension the OUNB and Captive Nations Week. And Reagan himself was a um, was actually a, a big fan of Captive Nations Week. Um, the CIA in but the 50s had like assembly of captive nations of european nations and um and the uh or rather the crusade for freedom which is tied up with the radio for europe thing and all that and um reagan was like a unwitting allegedly unwitting spokesperson for the crusade for freedom which was entirely funded by the cia and um and then later on, um, when Jimmy Carter almost dared to become the first U.S. president to ignore Dobryansky's Captive Nations Week resolution, uh, Reagan and other right-wingers were hammering him for that. And so, um, you know, before Reagan comes into office, he's criticizing Carter for being soft on the Captive Nations. Of course, when he becomes president, he's going to have the biggest Captive Nations Week that there ever was. And I think he actually became the first president to do like a public signing ceremony um, and statements like in the Rose Garden and stuff for it. So he brought it all to a new level and Dobriansky was right there to help corral, you know, these wackle ABN, OUNB, Captive Nations Week uh, people and fellow travelers into power. Hey Moss, I got a I got a quick question. You know, g getting back to Bahamas, do you think that Dobriansky had any relationship with the Resorts International operation that was going down there? 
Yeah, I don't really, I don't know. I don't know anything about that, really. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? I know. I'm just, I'm just asking. uh, And maybe Recluse has maybe something. Well, Vesco had actually been in negotiations to buy um, Resorts International, I think around like 72 or 73, like that. But it was, uh, this was like right around the time when he started to have his initial legal problems, if I remember correctly. And that was what nixed that deal. Um, but an interesting thing about Vesco's links to Dobryansky is also the fact that Vesco was, um, a partner of, uh, Mitch Warbell, I believe, uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, of course, for those of you, uh, unaware, Warbell was, uh, an infamous, um, arms trafficker for a lot of years. He'd been one of those, uh, OSS old boy, uh, China hands, during the Second World War, where you would have been in contact with uh, people like John Sinklaub and uh, E. Howard Hunt and so forth. Uh, Warbell was also uh, implicated in trafficking marijuana at one point, I believe, in the 1970s as well. He's another guy, I don't know if he was ever um, directly involved with Wackle, but uh, he certainly traveled in a lot of the same circles and... Um, you know, it was a big player in a lot of the uh, the arms trade for these uh, quote unquote freedom fighters during that particular era. By the way, we can yeah. also tie Warbell to ten twenty eight Connecticut Avenue, that famous address <clears throat> that I like to keep bringing up. Uh, he was also tied to Larry Flint too, ironically, um, who seems to come up in this a lot. Uh, I guess that's not really too. And surprising. Larry McDonald. Yeah. 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 Well, Flint, I mean, specifically, yeah. he was like, uh, Warbell was like, what, the bodyguard for Flint. And then he was later uh, replaced with the one uh, guy who was working with uh, Manson to uh, William Mincer or something like that. So that kind of plays into the whole Cotton Club thing, too, um, which also involved drug trafficking. Uh, what was it? The Middle East cartel, I think. And of course, Robert Evans. Um and that also kind of links back to Resorts International. But, yeah, that's um, – I don't want to get too sidetracked with all of this. All right. So, Keith, the great blue oyster cult proclaimed the 1970s to be the golden age of leather. But you've written that the 1980s was the golden age of wackle. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Golden age of leather. See, that's like fascist chic, right? And that's the 70s is when they, they, the, the new generation comes out, right? Anyway, um, yes, the golden age of Wackle. Um, that is uh, actually probably the easiest question I've been asked in this whole series. So let me um, do what we do here and, and complicate it uh, <laughs> a little bit. Um, I just, you know, before I'm going to answer you, I promise, and I'll make it kind of short, but I, I just want to, I want to give a little context. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I grew up in the eighties. Okay. And, you know, I was born like, I was like a Watergate baby, you know, in 74. Right. So I'm like becoming a teenager during the eighties and the Reagan years were like my childhood. Uh, I remember going to the flea market in Pearland, Texas. You could, you know, pay a quarter and like throw three darts at a picture of the Ayatollah, you know, and hope to hit him between the eyes. And this was like the golden age of like this super macho, anti-government vigilante entertainment, like Dirty Harry movies and Charles Bronson and Chuck Norris and Sylvester Stallone and and like Rambo, the Rambo movies, Rambo was modeled after a real guy named Bo Greitz, G-R-I-T-Z. Um, 
like a Christian identity militia supporting guy who really hit his strides making hay with the likes of like Robert Brown and Ross Perot. Wasn't he like a Mormon at one point? Yeah. Also a Mormon. Well, they all kind of bleed together in, in the, in the, the deep twilight of their, their ideology about who the, who the Bible's talking about. Who's the Bible really talking about when they're talking about Jews, you know, or or the the Hebrew people and all this kind of stuff. So there's kind of like a little behind the curtain thing where a lot of this stuff comes together. And I'll, I'll actually get into that a little bit more at the end, but um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, growing up on those Rambo movies and the Chuck Norris, they're fighting Muslim terrorists with like the Mac tens and in invasion USA. I'm pretty sure Mitch Warbell invented the Mac 10, but they're all carrying like Israeli submachine guns and like Uzis and stuff. And the government's always wrong. And it's these guys that got to take matters into their own hands to get real justice and rescue the POWs that the government left behind. And it just feeds into like the anti-government macho culture that just, you know, like the subtext for the whole eighties, you know, you got, it also plays into the whole stab in the back myth, uh, you know, for the truth. Yeah. They, they, they didn't let us win the war and they didn't even let us bring our boys home. And so you need that like victim thing to nurse, you know, that's like the teat that fascism nurses off of is victimhood and a loss of status and, you know, loss of prestige. Right. So they really pumped that up. And, uh, and so you had like Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and GI Joe cartoons. And I remember at one point when I was a kid, like it was like a Chuck Norris cartoon followed by a Rambo cartoon followed by like GI Joe. And you had like pro wrestling and Hulk Hogan and macho man, Randy Savage fighting against the iron Sheik. And it just like totally not homoerotic at all. Okay. And if you say it is, I'm going to, I'm going to, those are fighting words and I'll fight you until we're exhausted and just covered with blood and sweat and musk. And then we just collapse and we just don't have anything we can do, but just like make out furiously. Anyway, after class, we'll talk. Um, during during all this time, like the, the the pop culture is like filling our head, and they're gearing us up. You know, they're starting to make like uh, the Muslims are the bad guys. You know, and 20 years later, it kind of matures in the war on terrorism. But they got started on my generation when we were like little kids with uh with these movies and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and Wackle was propping up at this time, the very people that would later become our enemies in the global war on terror, namely like Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen and and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's crazy. Red Dawn, I should throw that one in there. Um, I don't know if y'all remember like punk rock music or if you remember like the Dead Kennedys or Suicidal Tendencies or Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, you know, the British punks and the hardcore scene, like like uh, bands like The Exploited, who never had anything good to say about Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan over here in the States. I mean, these people, they saw it for what it was. It was this kind of fashy, you know, um, this crazy, like hyper macho pink swastika like culture. And you had the D.A.R.E. program, you know, kids narking on their parents and reagan's like giving a big screw you to all the victims of aids except of course for his old family friend roy Cohn. um yeah just strike breaking flooding the streets with cheap coke and heroin and nancy reagan's on tv saying just say no uh it's just it's just crazy it was just a it was just a crazy time you look back at it and it's like wow you know 
And I want to also say that during this decade of the 80s, from roughly 1980 to 1991, over a million people from south of the border escaped the death squads that we were funding, and they came into this country over the southern border, a, a migration of over a million people in a decade period. This is why we have this wall down the street from me here, okay? Um, and there was something called uh, the sanctuary movement. And so if you heard about sanctuary cities and caravans and all this stuff uh, in like 2018, and you know Trump's going to punish these sanctuary cities, it's kind of like a, a, a ping back to the 1980s when uh, churches all over the country, before they got like taken over by Godism of like the moon Buckman sort of variety. And the, you know, churches were a little more Christian in my opinion back then than maybe they are today. A lot of them, uh, including ones right down the, the road here in Tucson, they took in these migrants and they sheltered them and let them sleep by the dozens in their, their church halls. And they were hiding them from the immigration service of, of Ronald Reagan, who was hunting them here to deport them. And they had camps, detention camps on the border, just like we do now. And they would deport them. And a lot of times, like, it took a few times for these El Salvadoran refugees, you know, getting sent back, deported. And then they get disappeared. You know, they just, they get, they get killed. Nobody ever sees them again. And that's kind of where the churches stepped in and the sanctuary movement was born. And they fell back on, you know, scripture you know, um, to defend themselves and appeals to international law and, and just humanity in general. So the eighties sucked. Um, but you could get heroin and cocaine like really cheap. So that was like an upside. Uh, so just a little context there, historical. Um, but back to your question, golden age of wackle, you know, um, the simple answer is, uh, it, it just it, it, like all the stars lined up, you know, um, APACL started basically like to help relitigate the Chinese Civil War and maybe the Korean War as well. Right. Um, that's something that they always wanted. And they always wanted uh, overt, normal, nominal diplomatic and especially military support from the United States. But they also wanted it in their league. So some of that secondhand glitter of American prestige would rub off on not just APACL itself, but also um, its chiefs and its cause and its own diplomatic standing in the world. You know, Taiwan was on the UN Security Council once upon a time, um, and it's just been downhill ever since. So they were always after this brass ring of full-throated American participation. And we've talked in the previous episodes about how that kind of came and went and people that had their doubts about it. And then what happened when they finally joined, it, it becomes like a PR disaster. But in our last episode, we talked about how all these schisms and, and splits and, and crises in Wackle, and they're important. But at the same time, we got to remember or we got to pay attention to the fact that the league kept on chugging and kept on growing. Like Don was saying, you know, Japan never skipped a beat. And when it came to growing this league, 
you know, I talked in the last episode about the last Wackle uh, meeting hosted by the Americans in the mid 70s before they quit because of the PR crisis. Well, they nevertheless brought in Le Cercle, you know, Belgium. They brought in uh, the Guatemalan Death Squad Party. They brought in the Colorado Party of Paraguay. Um, and then they took the hit and they were out. But those, all those other groups were like still in. Same thing, 78, you know, Roger Pearson, he's bringing on all these European, like West European and Northern European groups into the wackle fold. And the Italian social movement um, of, was it Giorgio Almirante, the old black shirt? We talked about all this in the last episode. You know, Roger Pearson has to make his exit, but the MSI is, is in now, and they brought him in. So these American groups you know, kind of sacrifice themselves for the cause or whatever, but the league keeps on chugging and keeps on growing. And by 1980, this like global anti-communist death star is fully operational. Um, and just about everybody from around the world that's going to get into it has gotten into it. And so going back to the fifties and the sixties with young Americans for freedom and this new right thing, that's kind of growing and growing and they want Goldwater in 60 and 64. They don't get him, but then, you know, the next decade they get Ronald Reagan and they finally have got their new right guy in the White House. Well, throughout the 60s and 70s, Wackel had been building up. And from the American perspective, Wackel was like the new rights uh, semi-clandestine foreign policy arm. This is like the Young Americans for Freedom International, okay? as far as they're concerned. So they've built, they've helped to build this, this anti-communist death star. And by 1980, they not only have that fully operational, but they've got their guy in the white house and it's like time to rock and roll. You know, this is what Wackel was built for. Um, and, and they deployed it and, uh, to, to, to great effect. And, uh, you know, the books at the time, uh, not everybody always talked about APACL or WACL, like Ross Cohen's China Lobby book that we talked about in the China Lobby episode makes no mention of APACL at all. But he's talking about APACL and its elements without seeing the APACL piece of it. Um, uh, what's the other guy? Uh, Alfred McCoy, Politics of Heroin, is talking about these KMT guys that go into the Shan states and Burma and start growing you know, opium and using it to fund their, their, their efforts. These are KMT APACL guys, but um, McCoy does not talk about Wackle. He does not bring up APACL, but he's talking about them without, without it being explicit that he is. Um, but by the time and after uh, Inside the League comes out, and then especially into the 90s, like if like if uh, the politics of heroin were written today, they would talk about Wackel, you know, because by the late 80s, it, it was very, very much, uh, you know, kind of a household name amongst people that study these things. It was very visible. It was very known. It had its time in the sun, you know, its longest uninterrupted period of American involvement in the 80s. And it was like Reagan's veto over Congress as far as like foreign policy went. Um, you know, in the 
in the in the last episode mentioned how there's uh in Asuncion, Paraguay, there's Chiang Kai-shek Boulevard, you know, and it was named such because um <clears throat> the Taiwanese and and Wackel and Apackel um had helped them build like a world-class presidential palace. And so this Chinese nationalist hero gets his own street in Paraguayan capital. Um, and it's just an illustration of the kinds of technical assistance and the favors that they gave to Latin American governments, like in exchange for continuing, you know, diplomatic recognition of this more and more isolated Taiwan. Um, and it's the same with their political warfare cadres academy. Uh, this is another asset that the KMT can lend to its Latin American allies in like the 70s and 80s doing these death squad trainings for these anti-communist governments like a, a quid pro quo, right? But the fact that Taiwan had like developed that military and political warfare training capacity and the more like benign economic and infrastructure development and technical assistance, you know, all of those capabilities that Taiwan had were built up by Uncle Sam in the post-war period, right? So it's almost like a, a pass-through. It's like American dollars funding Taiwan and American development of Taiwanese infrastructure that then is used to support these governments in Latin America. And so if Congress cuts off aid to like the Contras or you know Honduras or whatever, um, they can tap into this overseas source that nobody has to ask Congress about, but the United States um, greenbacks and foreign policy had built up those capacities in those other parts of the world. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's the same with the Korean Mooney pass through and, and Japanese as well. Right. So what I'm saying is um, APACL and WACL provided like this framework to either work in tandem with the U.S. government directly in good times, fair weather, or as a workaround in harder times. So it's like this offshore capacity. Uh, it's like a deep state kind of thing. You know, this this nexus of like organized crime and invisible gold and narcotics trafficking and terrorism and propaganda and war that you can offshore and um and that, by the way, is like your textbook definition of parapolitics, the, the twilight zone of, you know, spooks, mobsters, drugs, and the overworld working with the criminal underworld to define the world. And like Midgard is the product of Asgard and Niflheim collaborating with each other. Um, so what I'm getting at is like that whole toolkit that had been developed all that time like is firing on all cylinders during the eighties and the new right had now taken over the government in, in a way that it never had, you know, it always had kind of dreamed of doing. So the executive power that the Reagan administration has can be like deployed across all these different non-governmental organizations, letterhead organizations, but also just like the, the wackle network is like at its disposal. And I, I mean, I could ramble on. I got I got some more I'm going to get into later. But this is this is the period where all the stars were lined up. They had the greatest ally they ever were going to have in the Reagan administration. And Reagan had with Wackel the ideal like worldwide network to use to like 
crush Soviet communism around the world and like a decisive one decade long like death blow um, that ended with, you know, tear down this wall. Right. So very, very effective uh, partnership between the highest levels of U.S. government and this international worldwide network. And I'll stop there. That was great, Keith. All right, John, why don't you give us an overview of this Iran-Contra thing that uh, we keep referencing? Uh, it's so significant to all of this. So uh, what was it, and why was it so significant? Okay, I'll probably, if I miss anything, you guys fill in the blanks, all right? But I think I, think I, I, think I got this. I'm going to try not to get too technical with the Iran-Contra affair. I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible, but there are a lot of people involved and a lot of groups involved and a lot of countries involved and a lot of moving parts um but um okay so um the united states uh was um a large um arms uh, seller uh, uh to iran um and that was even you know during the, the 1970s and um in 1979 in um november uh, was when the um, Iranian hostage crisis um, occurred under um, Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter imposed an arms embargo on Iran um, when that had happened, when um, 52 Americans were taken hostage, American embassy in uh, Tehran, um, when Iranian students had uh, stormed the American embassy. And so... Um, uh, in 1980, in September, uh, Iraq uh, invaded Iran, and so the um, Iraq-Iran war had started within the Middle East. So um, Reagan was, you know, elected president and took office in January 20th, uh, 1981, and uh, he said that he would um, continue uh, backing. Uh, Jimmy Carter's policy of blocking um, arms sales to Iran, um, and that uh, Iran had us uh, is a sponsor of uh, global terrorism. Um, so, of course, you know Reagan is a liar, and uh, would later um, there would be a uh, brokerage of arms sales. Uh, the arms would be sold. Um, and transferred from the United States ally of Israel uh, to Iran, and then Iran would pay us, and the um, Amer America would resupply Israel with arms. So Israel was a big player of the Iran-Contra affair because they were more concerned about Iraq, allegedly, at the time, and them winning the Iraq-Iranian war, um, and then um, Saddam Hussein um, turning his attention to um, uh, Israel. Of course, funny enough, now Iran is Israel's quote-unquote greatest enemy. So it's funny how that played out, as we were the ones who armed Iran, but I digress, with the help of Israel. Um, so while all that was going on, 
um, the uh, Contras. Um, of course, okay, I guess I should start with the Sandinistas. So the Sandinistas um, took power in Nicaragua. They were named after Augusto Caesar uh, Sandino, uh, who uh, led the Nicaraguan resistance uh, against U.S. occupation during the 1930s. And, um, you know, they had taken uh, control of over uh, Nicaragua. And um, they were seen by players of the United States to be communist. Um, they were a you know socialist regime who had done some um, good things for the in betterment of, of their people, like increasing liter- literacy rates and education. Um, but of course, you know the world was also condemning them for human rights violations too. But um, you know <laughs> the Contras were were no different and. I'll get to that, but um, the Contras at least uh, appear uh, or were made to appear to be freedom fighters against communism uh, taking hold within uh, Nicaragua. So the um, uh, you know Reagan administration wanted to fund the Contras so that they were going to be able to overthrow the Sandinistan government and their president Daniel Ortega, who is even the current president of Nicaragua today um and the trump administration was also trying to reinstate nicaragua as um a um the nicaraguan government um with daniel ortega in power currently as as being a sponsor of a terror and part of their trioka tyranny so i guess it was a continuation of cmp uh world politics um so uh, the um, United, United States uh, legislature, the Congre- legislation of Congress, um, you know, decided that it should not have been within Reagan's power to make administration's power to fund the uh, Contras. So they passed a series of, of amendments um, titled, you know, um, the, the main great framework for it was the Boland Amendment, uh, so that uh, the Reagan administration could not uh, directly fund the Contras. So instead, the money uh, that was um, um, supposedly, you know, paid uh, for the weapons for the Iran-Contra affair, uh, some of that money uh, went to uh, Iran, um, but millions, almost, I think it was like anywhere from 10 to 14 million dollars of it. It was close to like 30 million dollars total or somewhere around there. Uh, that was, you know, supposed to be set aside for um, uh, the Iranians and weapons and everything, um, was ended up given to the Contras. So that was one way that they had circumvented the Bolin Amendment. Uh, Saudi Arabia, too, it's less reported on, uh, was also involved in setting up uh, the arms deal uh, with Israel uh, to Iran uh, as well. So... Um, the uh, Reagan administration uh, also, which this is less reported too, um, s- seeked funding for the Contras from the Council for National Policy, where Oliver North uh, gave speeches to the CMP uh, for fundraising. And uh, General Major General John K. Singlob said that they had raised um, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for uh, the Contra rebels through CMP meetings. 
as well as fundraising too was also done uh, at Wackle meetings too as well that Singlog also mentioned too. And that there was at least $100,000 um, from fellow CMP members who were also involved in Wackle uh, that was given for the uh, Contra rebels. So there's that. There's also the uh, Latin American drug trade, um, of course, through the excellent work that was exposed to the ex excellent work of um, um, Gary Webb, uh, who authored uh, the Dark Alliance books um, about how, you know, the CIA um, and the Reagan and Bush administrations. Being involved in the Latin American drug trade to the inner city ghettos within the United States and, of course, the involvement of uh, Freeway Rick Ross, uh, some of that money, a lot of that money, was also going to fund the Contra rebels as well. And, uh, two, there is a Franklin scandal connection, too, that um, there was an exchange allegedly between Oliver North, Colonel Michael Aquino, and Lawrence E. King of uh, uh, Nicaragua Contra bonds. So you have arms trafficking, you have drug trafficking, and you have sex trafficking going to fund the Contra rebels uh, during the Iran Contra affair, and all of it stemmed from yeah. the CMP wackle. And the Reagan administration. Uh, all, all to fight communism, you guys. All of it. And the countless uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were murdered uh, by the Contra. And, you know, the Latin American death squads, too, as well, outside of Nicaragua. But I digress. Yeah. And the millions of... The old saying is, uh, you know, careful go when you go fighting monsters that you don't become one, right? You, you were saying... Yeah, yes, yes. And the millions, of course, lives that were ruined by the cocaine, you know, crack trade of the 1980s that was done by the CIA and Reagan administration and the CNPA and Wackle being involved, too. But yet I digress. And of course, you know, the Ayatollah Khomeini is supposed to be this huge threat, threat in Iran, right? You know, all the movies and he's made out to be the boogeyman and stuff. But yet we are giving him arms uh, for the Iraqi-Iran conflict. So it was all a mess, um, and so uh, there was a leak by uh, Mehdi uh, Hashemi, was a senior official in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, to the Lebanese magazine Ashira, um, that exposed the arrangement, you know, the Iran Contra affair in November 1986. Um, some people say that the leak may have been led by author C. Moreau Jr., assistant to the chairman of the United States Joint Chiefs of Staffs. Due to the fears that the scheme had gotten had grown out of control, well, <laughs> I mean, of, of course it did, right? So then you have, you know, tells of you know weapons being traded at different allied ports around the world, and you know various reports. Of course, Reagan has to address the public twice. Eventually, fesses up, you know, that he was aware, uh, some degree of of, of it going on, um, but you know. Kept, you know, doubling down and tripling down that Iran was not a um, global sponsor uh, of terror the way they were giving arms. I mean, it's just go back and listen to those, uh, you know, nation addresses by Reagan. They're just they're just so ludicrous. They're lies and complete other lies. <sighs> so, um, you know, the press started, you know, investigating. And, and then, of course, we have the Tower Commission 
that was put forth by uh, John Tower, uh, Senator John Tower. Um, and of course, I believe that the Tower Commission was a, a lot, in a lot of ways, was a complete whitewash. In that, it didn't really. Um, well, yeah, Tower, just to throw in, became uh, one of the principal U.S. agents for a certain Robert Maxwell, um, I believe, shortly after that. So, um, yeah, that uh, should tell you a bit about the integrity of the guy uh, overseeing it. <laughs> yes, of course. So it didn't, uh, with Tower, you know, it, he, he pretty much stopped short at Reagan, right? And, of course, no one's mentioning George H.W. Bush as well, who I believe. I think Reagan was pretty much kind of like a like a like a dupe, a puppet. You know, I believe that uh, George H. W. Bush was more of the grand puppeteer uh, of the Reagan administration, very similar to Dick Cheney and George W. Bush, and how that would mirror. Um, so absolutely. You know, I, so mm-hmm. you know, Reagan. You know, Tower may have been right. Reagan probably did not know the ins and outs really <laughs> of the Iran Contra affair, or really the ability to understand it. I'm not saying that he didn't know anything. I am sure that he did. Um, there were numerous, uh, you know, briefings of, of the Council for National Policy that we know of through the Reagan Library that were given to Reagan directly about the Rand Contra affair and what Oliver North's speeches were at the CMP. Did so they, Reagan had some idea, but I don't think he did. They, the, did they happen to note um, if they gave him those briefings while he was watching cowboy movies? Possibly, 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 yes, and holding seances. Um, but you know, I, I. I am not, you know, absolving Reagan. I'm just saying George H.W. Bush was the guy that was knew mostly everything and was handling a lot of it. All right. And I'm not trying to say that Reagan was, yeah, he was you a, know, blameless. George H.W. was a yeah, three term president. <laughs> yes, 100 percent agree. Um, so, you know, and so, of course, I can't leave, leave out, you know, two of the arms trades middlemen in all of this, you know, Monsieur Gobinafor and Adnan Kashiogi too as well. Can't can't leave them out. Um, so, um, you know, later there were uh, congressional committees, you know, ended up investigating uh, the Iran-Contra affair after the Tower report. And there was indictments that were given, including, you know, the Secretary of Defense of the Reagan administration, Casper uh, Warburger, who got two court counts of perjury, and one count of obstruction of justice. Robert C. McFarlane, National Security Advisor, um, entered a plea bargain and got two years probation. probation. Infamous neocon Elliot Abrams, who's Assistant Secretary of State, was convicted of withholding evidence, um, but after a plea bargain was given two years probation. Oliver North was indicted on 16 charges. A jury convicted him of accepting an illegal gratuity, obstruction of congressional inquiry, and destruction of documents. Of course, you know, Fawn Hill shredded all those documents, right? I mean, that was uh, Oliver North's uh, sec- secretary, but she was given immunity from prosecution on charges of conspiracy and destroying documents exchanged for her testimony. Um, so um, the convictions were – his convictions were overturned on appeal. Because his Fifth Amendment rights have been violated by use of his immunized public testimony and, and because the judge had incorrectly explained the crime of destruction of the, doc, uh, the documents to jury. Uh, National Security Advisor John Poindexter was convicted of five counts of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, perjury, defrauding the government, and the alternation of destruction of evidence. Uh, panel of the D.C. Circuit overturned convictions. Uh, uh, the, the convictions on, on 15 for the same reason the court overturned Oliver's North. Supreme Court feared to hear the case. Of course, there were more people involved, but these were just the, you know, the, the major players. Um, and of course, George H.W. Bush would later uh, pardon um, all those involved in the Round Contra affair on the behest of William Pelham, the former 
uh, Secretary of State, um, and uh, of, 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 of uh, multiple administrations, <laughs> including Donald Trump, bar the, the, one of the biggest swamp dwellers and fixers of them all, right? Um, so he told a Bush, in for a penny, in for a pound, because some people were like, you can't pardon Casper Weinberger. And uh, Barr was like, hold my beer, we'll get it done. So that happened. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, you have, you know, Norwega, Norwega's involvement in all that with the drug trafficking and Bush's involvement with Norwega. And uh, did I miss anything, you guys? Did I miss anything? I think you covered it, but I'll, I'll just, you know, we just just dwell for a moment on that William Barr guy who was seen as like Trump's like savior and was like played the role as the revolving cadre of people that the Q cult hung their hopes on that he was going to help Donald Trump win his war against the deep state. It's like, dude, y'all's memories are really short. This this is you don't get any more deep state than the guy who did the mass pardon of the Iran-Contra gang, you know, it's just it's crazy town. Yes, very much so. And one, I guess one last thing in closing is independent counsel Lawrence E. Walsh, who headed the investigation of um, Reagan administration officials' criminal conduct in the Iran-Contra affair scandal, said the Iran-Contra cover-up has continued for more than six years, has now been completed with the pardons that was pushed forth by uh, you know, William Pelham Barr for Bush to get that done. So, you know, that's that's the Rand Contra affair in a nutshell and uh, multiple countries being involved, a lot of money being transferred, um, and a lot of abhorrent things being done like arms trafficking, uh, drug trafficking, and sex trafficking, and millions upon millions of people dead from it and lives affected and very, very true evil. So, yeah, can I and the CMP and WACO were both involved heavily in there, yes. But just just to add something to bring it back to Wackle, um, <clears throat> you know, Oliver North is Reagan's main, not the only, but his main liaison to the United States Council for World Freedom under John Singlob mm -hmm. during during this period. So, yeah, that's the guy who Singlob in these interviews and I'm going to talk about Singlob in, in a few minutes. So for those who you know, hear us talking about this guy. They don't know who we're talking about, maybe. But, uh, you know, he would say as he's waiting for a signal from from Reagan, you know, waiting for the nod, waiting to hear if they're going to tell him to stop doing what he's doing. And the signal never came. So he kept doing it kind of thing is, is the way he covered his rear. Uh, John Singlob in his interviews on TV and in print during that time. So there's your there's yes. one of several wackle connections to that whole thing. Right. And I, I didn't even mention, of course, you know, Don would speak more of this, but, you know, the, the funding of the Contras by, you know, the Unification Church as well. Um, I mean, there's that. Uh, Wackle member Louis Tams, who is the U.S. ambassador to Costa Rica, also counsel for national policy member, uh, used his post to help the, uh, the Contra rebels open up a military front um, in, um, in Nicaragua. And, you know, I mean, they're all they're all steeped in this, you know, a majority of them all CMPers and Wackle. Um, they helped, you know, fund the Contras and did whatever they possibly can uh, for for them to succeed. Uh, why circumvent, you know, circumventing, you know, United States uh, and even global policy. 
um, at the behest of harming and killing so many people, it's it's sickening. So, and it's it's really interesting too. I mean, how it really does uh, march in lockstep with you know, I mean, a lot of the propaganda Keith had just alluded to that we were seeing from that era, uh, you know, with the Stallone movies and the Chuck Norris ones and that type of stuff. This just whole uh, mentality, you know, that uh, sometimes a real man had to just uh, ignore the government and the laws and do what need to be done despite what um, spineless liberals said. And um, effectively, that was also being played out um, within the government itself. Um, so I suppose it's entirely surprising that uh, it was possible to sell the uh, the pardons to the public at large by the early 90s. Uh, yes, we had already had a good uh, almost decade or so of uh, this kind of uh, propaganda and jingoism um, leading up to that. So, yeah, it's an interesting uh, component to all of this. But anyway. All right, Don. So during our last show, you shared with us uh, Mooney and Wackle connections to the so-called cocaine coup, which played out in uh, Bolivia during 1980. Now we're up to Iran-Contra. What Mooney and Wackle connections do you detect here? Uh, hey, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for that, John. Um, you know, what I, what I did last night when I finally got done with all my you know, homework and preparing for this podcast, I treated myself, quote unquote, to uh, kill the messenger. I had actually never seen it. And um, I don't want to say that Jeremy Renner, you know, should get an Academy Award, you know, for his role as Gary Webb. But but um, it was good to see the movie. It was good to be able to get my uh, my heart in, into that uh, story you know, via the big screen, quote unquote. Of course, it was on my computer screen. But uh, uh, so anyway, you know, I just wanted to mention that. So, you know, before I begin uh, my answer here, I, I, I think I want to clarify something. You know, I, you know, ever since I, you know, discovered uh, that the Moonies had, you know, you know, traces, quote unquote, connections to uh, the Nazi post-war diaspora. <clears throat> I've always had it in my mind that the Moonies would show up time and again in Nazi circles, uh, which, of course, is what happened in Bolivia, you know, in 1980, you know, Klaus Barbie, etc. cetera. Uh, not to mention the neo-Nazi moon connections to the ABN network. Um, those becoming quite obvious uh, by the late 70s. So uh, I guess you could say I've developed a nose for sniffing out these connections over time. And uh, and that's just what happened again. Um, you know, finding more moon and Nazi connections here, you know, as I started digging into Iran-Contra. Uh, now, Barbie down in Bolivia, you know, he was a part of an international arms trafficking network. Uh, amongst his other nefarious activities, which I won't go into here. You know, if, if anyone wants to read um, Covert Action Information Bulletin Number 5 from 1986, you'll get some solid information on Barbie there, you know, not to mention some good books that have been written on Barbie. I know, I know Recluse, you've read at least one of them. Um, 
but as far as the arms network is concerned, um, I mean there, I mean there's no way of really knowing if Bohe Pak, you know, was made aware of any details connected to that Klaus Barbie network. But knowing how much Bohe Pak was in the know about certain things. Um, you know, our last podcast, you know, certainly brought that out. It, it's hard to it's hard for me to believe that Pac wasn't cognizant of at least something uh, about that arms network. So so say if we assume that assume that that's true, it, it's probably not going to come to uh, much of a surprise to anyone if we find out a few years later that Causa again uh, is in very close proximity to another Nazi arms trafficking operation. <clears throat> and that's just what I found out. Uh, Dan- Daniel Graham, uh, Cow's Illuminary, he had a close connection with the Nazi arms trafficker. And I'm going to share more on that here in a bit. Um, and by the way, I discovered that... Hey, the hey second- Ed, I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but do you mean L- Lieutenant uh, General Daniel O'Graham? Yep, that's the man. Okay, because yep. he was very, very much a part of the Council for National Policy. Yes, he was. Uh, and was very yeah. much involved in the um, – he had a, a special relationship with um, Craig uh, J. Spence, who was very high up in the Franklin scandal. Yeah. So they worked yep. together very, a lot. Very and, same man. And he, was, uh, and he was on the USCWF board of Wackles American Chapter in the 80s. Yeah, he was uh, he was omnipresent. I'm gonna say, uh, you can find his name pretty much everywhere in, in all the likely places that we're uh, digging into. So um, so anyway, getting uh, so anyway, the second Mooney connection to arms trafficking, um, you know, I found that out through the Iran Contra Tower Commission depositions. And I and I know what you just said, you know, John, about the Tower Commission depositions. I was chatting with uh, Keith, actually, uh, right before this podcast, and I was I was telling him, you know, you need to know how to read these depositions to know exactly what you can glean out of them. That's going to make uh, an impact for whatever you know goals you have from the research. And man, that was a freaking homework assignment. We're talking forty thousand pages um but it was well worth it um, yeah yeah you were telling me last night on the phone that you were worried that you were going to have too much to say today and i said did you not go through every single line of the iran contra de- depositions and you answered in the affirmative and i said have you not earned the right to say whatever you got to say <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah. how many people can say they've done that that's that's awful no, th- th- that is true, and that is quite a task, um, Don. But um, <laughs> I, 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 but I, the thing is, is about those depositions. I guess the reason why I think it was kind of a whitewash, even though there's nuggets of truth and gold in there, is because right. it would take someone like you or me or Keith or Recluse or Ed to really be able to halfway grasp some of the connections in there. But the average person, even the average reporter back then or whatever, hmm. They wouldn't even come close. Yeah, well, they wouldn't. What they wouldn't know what to do with the nuggets. 
at that particular point. Now with that, we have all the research that has been accumulated over time, over time, the, the total aggregate of information out there, then you can take those nuggets and actually start doing something with them, uh, which I feel that I have. So, um, so anyway, you know, obviously we haven't talked about Daniel Graham until now in this Wackle series, but as you guys are already, you know, well aware, I mean, he's a huge figure. He, he became one of Bohe Pock's quote unquote best buddies uh, in Kauza. Uh, so much so, actually, that when you go through the Unification Church archives, you can find Bohe Pock talking about Graham on a number of occasions. Pock would brag to the rank and file Moonies, uh, like myself, uh, about how he and Sun Myung Moon helped Graham get to Ronald Reagan about SDI the Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, as it was commonly called, you know, Pac, you know, just paraphrasing here, would say that it was because of Moon that Reagan was willing to hear out what Daniel Graham and his High Frontier Group had to offer for the SDI project. Moon was the SDI man, according to Pac. Wow. Wow. I don't know if I believe okay. that, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pac, I'll tell you, man, he knows he, he knows how to fill the room. I mean, you talk about a bunch of hot air. I mean, you know, Pac had a big mouth and and uh, everyone knew it. OK, but when you were a faithful Mooney, you just all thought it was, you know, peaches and cream. OK, whatever. Um, but the fact is, is that Bohe Pac even though he talked, you know, a, a big game and he talked in these, you know, flowery ways, whatever, it was very clear that Moon and Graham were were definitely on uh, best of terms with each other. And, and I think that that's quite significant. Um, now, just to digress slightly, I want to give you an idea of how well connected Dan, Daniel Graham was and particularly as it relates to a chronology of the Moon organization. Here is what I found in his deposition. After graduating from West Point at the end of World War II, uh, he does his first stint in Germany. And from there, in 1954, he goes to Korea to command an infantry company until 56. Now, I have no way of knowing one way or the other, but I've got to wonder if Graham would have crossed paths with moral rearmament, connected Mooney, my favorite Mooney, Young Un Kim, or Bohe Pak, possibly. Like during this little time period, is it possible that Graham could have crossed paths? Because as our loyal listeners would know, Young Un Kim was working at the U.S. Army in Seoul, Korea, as the secretary in the chaplain's office in 1956. And she mm. recruited Bohe Pak to the Moonies right out of that office. So did Daniel Graham know about the Moonies early relationship with the U.S. military? Did he Was have he? Oh. personal <laughs> knowledge of that? Good wow. questions without maybe, good answers. Maybe, uh... The Daniel Grahams of the world is why the uh, the sign pointing to the Holy Spirit, you know, 
Unification Church was uh, in English. <laughs> hey, a, a fair point. So he okay. knew where to go. <laughs> fair point. Um, That's so just kind of interesting because, I mean, Graham also later worked with um, Elizabeth Clare Prophet in her outfit to promote the SDI, too. So, I mean, it does sort of make you wonder, too, about his uh, uh, affinity, I guess, for these uh, strange cults. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait till you get to the book that Keith's reading. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm going to mention that. I'm going to bring that back up. Let's circle back around to the yeah, church yeah, universal that, that would, and triumphant at yeah, the that end. Would be a, yeah, Ooh, sorry. Boy. Yeah, that no, 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 you're fine. But it's, it's I'm <laughs> glad somebody broke that ice because, you know, oh, it's that's weird, man. Oh, geez. All right. So moving along here with Graham by 58, which is the year Young Un Kim comes to the U.S. to start the Mooney operation in the West. Graham is now in the Pentagon working in intelligence. Is that just another coincidence? I don't know. But it's damn compelling, if you ask me. Okay, now by 63, Graham is working for the CIA, where Ray Klein is a top dog. And once again, our loyal listeners know how I feel about Ray Klein's connection to the Moonies. The coincidences just keep adding up here. Now, after Graham's thin in the CIA, he does other military intelligence work, including some time in Vietnam, where John Siglom was. Well, well, well. And after that, he's back at the CIA during the late 60s and early 70s. And that's when Neil Salone and then the Moonies start to take off with their anti-communist work. Can we add that on to our coincidences? I think I will. And fast forwarding slightly, by 74, Graham is heading up the Defense Intelligence Agency. And that's the year Gary Jarman was inserted into the New Right. So let's add that on to our coincidences, shall we? Now, Graham serves in that DA director role until 76, when he officially retires. By 78... He hooks up with John Fisher and the American Security Council, becoming the co-chairman of the Coalition for Peace through Strength. And 1978 was also the year that Gary Jarman gets his huge promotion in the New Right with the Christian Voice. By the way, I read this one article which talks about Graham and the New Right in the same breath which kind of connects back to a couple of things we've already said. So let's add one more coincidence in there, okay? All right, now Reagan becomes president. And right after Reagan takes office, Graham establishes his High Frontier organization, which I just talked about. High Frontier had a huge influence on Reagan's SDI agenda, the Star Wars project, as it was called, you know, that was being promoted heavily by Bohipak and the Washington Times, as I alluded to earlier. And then by the end of Reagan's first term, Graham is hooked up with Bohipak and Kauza. So I guess I've made my point here. Just how significant the Graham-Kauza connection is 
So enough of that digression, but I really had to go through that. I hope you guys appreciated that. Okay. I, I definitely do. And can I, can I just add something else about yeah, Star Wars? In there? Yeah, go ahead. If you, re- you read Dennis King's book, uh, Lyndon LaRouche and the new American fascism, you've got Lyndon LaRouche saying it was his idea <laughs> and he's, uh, got this fusion energy foundation thing and he's all up in the scientific world and trying to be like scientist guy. And he, and it talks about him trying to lean on Edward Teller and Stefan Passoni, uh, to get in on that. So it's, it's just, it's odd, but it's a little factoid, but, uh, no, that's what, you, you tell me Scott's international policy member and father of the atomic bomb, Edward Teller, who was running his own supposed blackmail ring out there in Hollywood with Teller's boys. So, yeah. 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 Old American council for world freedom guy. Uh, we talked about him in the last episode and he was also on the part of some group that was trying to promote moral morality and like the Ned Flandersization of America or whatever. But yeah, same guy. And he yeah. backed Bob Lazar's uh, Bob Lazar as well. Brother. Yeah. All right. Well, back to Iran Contra and Daniel Graham here. Um, as I continued on in Graham's deposition, I found out Graham was good friends with a German living in the States who just happened to be an arms trafficker. His name is Ernst Werner Glatt. Glatt owned a farm in Alexandria, Virginia. And the name of of his farm, get this, was Black Eagle Farm. Well, guys, if that doesn't speak for itself, I don't know what does. That's so Um, weird. <laughs> after research, yeah, right. After researching Glad a little bit, even though I couldn't find any direct links between Glad and Klaus Barbie, it became very clear that he had ties to the Third Reich. Nothing glaring, of course, but with these post-war operatives from Hitler's time, almost nothing is glaring. Okay, you have to do your homework to see these things. So Graham knew about Glatt's arm business and Graham recommended Glatt's business to someone quite important here for our discussion. I'm referring to Barbara, Barbara Studley, the founder of Geomilitech, which had strong ties, as a lot of you guys know, to Wackle through Singlob. GMT was the entity established by Studley to transfer arms to Iran through Israel, as John touched on earlier. Graham was actually an advisor to Studley. They had known each other from their days in Florida. After Graham retired in 76 and before he got hooked up with ASC, Graham was an adjunct professor at the University of Miami. Studley had a radio show at that time in Miami, where she was promoting her strong Christian anti-communist rhetoric, eventually promoting the Nicaraguan Contras. Studley, according to the Tower Commission testimony, had strong ties to high officials in the state of Israel and had a GMT office in Tel Aviv for at least some time. So to me, it was Graham essentially as far as I can tell, Graham 
jump-started this whole illegal arms trafficking operation to Iran via Israel. Graham arranged for Siglob to meet with Studley to discuss the GLAT arms trafficking operation, and the rest is history, as they say. Oh, by the way, Ray Klein, who remember, he had worked with Graham at the CIA, Klein was tied up with this whole geomilitech fiasco as well. He had, he had at least one private meeting with Barbara Studley, and it's pretty apparent from Klein's deposition that Klein actually served as a liaison between GMT and the CIA. Now, moving ahead here, when you take a closer look at this, Bohipak and Kauza seem to be facilitating this arms trafficking in some way. I don't know if money is involved at all, but the Moon Organization is really close to the fire here. For one, Kauza established in 1984 an organization called the International Security Council. And Daniel Graham had strong ties to it. Bernard Yeo, a key intelligence figure for South Vietnam during the Vietnam War, eventually working uh, with Reed Irvine of uh, Accuracy uh, in Media, he had strong ties to it. And we can actually trace Bernard Yeo's connection to the Moonies going all the way back to 69 when the Moonies established FLF. And Joseph Cherba, an Israeli who headed up the council, Cherba had a Mossad connection and a connection to the Likud party. The Likud party, as some of our listeners may know, had strong ties to Nazi Germany. Now, I also found out through one of LaRouche's journalists, in other words, an executive intelligence review article, okay, that the Mooney's connections with Israeli intelligence, meaning the Mossad, stems from the Bolivian cocaine coup. So there seems to be a through line from the Mooney connections formed during the cocaine coup up to Iran-Contra, okay? Anyway, by 1985, we know for sure that the International Security Council is formally communicating with the CIA because I found a document in the CIA archives to back that up. Then, and this is really important to my thinking here, in January 86, the ISC, the Security Council holds a conference in Tel Aviv, Israel. That conference coming at a time when the geomilitech operation was getting ramped up, shall we say. Also, just prior to that conference, you know, in Israel, and this is relevant, I think, Daniel Graham, so we're talking December 85 now, Graham had a meeting with Barbara Studley of geomilitech and CIA Director William Casey was at that meeting, too. It was a meeting of all three of them. Now, adding another Mooney connection here, one of the council members, International Security Council members that spoke at that conference 
was General Gordon Sumner. And what makes that really significant is that later that year, we're talking later in 86, both Singlob and Sumner, they sat in on a meeting with Barbara Studley where she's about to hire General Schweitzer as her right-hand man for Geomilitech. Oh, man. So now we have both Daniel Graham and Gordon Sumner, both CAUSA members, right in the thick of this illegal arms trafficking thing. And once again, Bohipak's ISC conference in Israel seems to be a part of all of this as well. I mean, honestly, with all this dot connecting between the Moon organization and illegal arms trafficking, I don't see how we can give the Moonies a free pass on this. Not even close. I mean, I'm just suffocating from all the smoke here. Are you guys having a hard time breathing too? Absolutely. My yeah, friend. but I have, I have other reasons for that. Yeah, me as well. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Now, <laughs> anyway, I know Keith is going to want to talk about Western Goals a little bit, but I, I do want to speculate here on the Western Goals Mooney connection to Iran-Contra. I have pieced together a fair amount of research that supports that conclusion, that the Moonies and Western Goals were working together somehow. Like, for one, there's a Bohipak connection to, Derry, to Terry Dolan of NICPAC, a connection that was probably facilitated by Gary Jarman, uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of assume here. Dolan's protege at NICPAC was Carl Spitz Chanel. hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Chanel, he would eventually branch out on his own ultimately becoming the prominent, quote-unquote, private fundraiser for the Contras. And during this time, he took over Western Goals in 85, to be exact. And it's apparent from my deposition research that Chanel was working with the Washington Times and most likely the entire media network that Pac and his son were building up during the 80s. In fact, Getting back to Dolan, uh, Chanel's uh, mentor, it was Dolan who helped Bohe Park's son, Jonathan Park. Dolan helped Park begin his media business in 84. That business eventually took on the name Atlantic Video. And by the late 80s, just to add this on, Atlantic Video brought in Max Hugel, Pac's son and probably Bohe Pac both wanted Hugel to help run things. And Hugel, he's got a CIA resume of his own, which included working directly under Bill Casey during the early part of Reagan's first administration. And as a, another side note, Bohe Pac's son, I don't know how important this is, but Bohe Pac's son changed his name to Park. You see, it goes from Pac to Park, okay? And this has always been kind of a mystery for me. The only thing that I can conclude is that it would make it harder for those interested in investigating the Moon organization. It would make it harder to connect the dots, you know, because of the change of name just by one letter. I mean, it would seem to make 
sense, you know, but that's just speculation on my part. Um, another important thing I think also I want to mention here, uh, since we're talking about the Mooney's media network, is that the Washington Times was doing its utmost to promote the Contra cause, okay? And it did so with a lot of force sometimes. The great Robert Perry, who was writing for the Associated Press at the time, Perry was getting hammered by Bohe Pox people, which, by the way, included Young Un Kim's recruit, Steve Kim, a KCIA Mooney. He was working at the Times, okay? Um, and, you know, the Times, they were known to even alter Perry's stories, especially if it was to protect South Korean interests. I discovered that in the CIA archives as well. And by the way, YAF leader uh, Lee Edwards uh, and Ray Klein's uh, son-in-law, Roger Fontaine, they were both on the Washington Times staff as well during this period. Okay, getting back to Western goals, okay, and the moon connection. And, th and this is where, you know, the rubber meets the road. When, when you add... Oliver North's little notebook, quote unquote, to the mix. That's when things really start to look suspicious. North's notebook had this little diagram in it, which showed both cows and Western goals right next to each other. Once again, a picture is worth a thousand words. And just for good measure, the Iran-Contra Tower, Tower Commission they were able to obtain documents showing that Chanel's organization had connections to Mooney patron Ryoichi Sasakawa. And those documents also showed that Chanel's people were contacting Causa president Philip Sanchez, the former ambassador to Honduras. And Bogey Pak, probably with the help of Sanchez, he developed strong ties to the Honduran strongman, General Gustavo Alvarez Martinez, who allegedly was behind death squad operations during the Contra period. And finally, for the icing on the cake, at least for this part of it, Father Thomas Dowling, a Causa guy, who I'll get to here in a, in a moment, there was a note the committee had that showed that Dowling was communicating with Western Goal rep Linda Gould. So you guys can see that there's a lot of smoke, maybe even some sparks when it comes to the Bohipak, Spitz Chanel, Western Gold milieu, we'll call it. All right, let me just finish up here by talking about Thomas Dowling. There are some... There are a number of sources out there that verify Father Dowling, as he was called. There's plenty of info that supports the claim that he was in deep when it came to the Contras. Dowling was on a very short list of those who carried traveler's checks, untraceable, of course, traveler's checks that came right out of Oliver Norris' office. Dowling had made trips to Central America, etc., and I would say the most glaring evidence showing Dowling's complicity in Iran-Contra, I think, would be the FBI interview transcripts of Dennis Ainsworth. Ainsworth, he's the guy that would eventually warn Gary Webb 
of the risks of going out with his story, the Dark Alliance crack cocaine story, which came out, as John touched on, came out in the late 90s. The Dark Alliance book, it just nails Thomas Dowling to the wall. But what I really want to talk about concerning Dowling is the church he belonged to. It was called the Old Roman Catholic Church. Now, Recluse, you're about the uh -oh. only one. Yeah, uh-oh. <laughs> now, Recluse, yeah, uh-oh. Now, Recluse, you're about the only one I've seen that has addressed that entity in any meaningful way. The Old Roman Catholic Church, in one of your posts, you connected it over to the American Orthodox Catholic Church. It's that church, of course, that many of our listeners know and recluses uh, faithful blog readers. The AOCC connects deeply to the JFK assassination. We, ha we have Peter Lavenda to thank for much of what we know on this. It is the AOCC that we find the likes of David Ferry, Jack Martin, and other wandering bishops, as they were called, but none were more important, at least to me, than Walter Profeta. That would be the very same Walter Profeta that I talked about in our Mooney show. As a quick review, I speculated that it was from a meeting that Profeta had with a key Korean figure, Ben C. Lim, back in late 1953, that through that meeting, there was a distinct possibility that both the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, APACL, and possibly the Moonies themselves were officially established due to what transpired shortly after that meeting. It was right after that meeting between Lim and Profeta that Lim met the ABN, attended their 10th anniversary commemoration. It was the first time that a Korean diplomat was meeting with the ABN. And Profeta was the one that brought this about. Now, of course, we will probably never know for sure one way or the other if my suspicions are correct. But, the you know, about Profeta being a profound influence on the beginning of the Mooney organization, etc., but the mere fact that we can potentially trace the beginnings of the Moon organization to some type of Nazi, Orthodox, Vatican, secret society element, I mean, that's fascinating to me. And the concept yeah, of the, just the, the fact that they're even in the same room together at any point is just even, even without any speculation at all. It's just like, wow, what is that? You know, right. Yeah. And, and the concept of apostolic secession, that's going to hit you right in the face here in a minute. It didn't take me long after reading your research, Recluse, and doing a little research on my own, just how significant this topic is, apostolic succession. I was actually able to piece together that the apostolic succession lineages that lead to Walter Profeta and Thomas Dowling stem from the same man. I was just gobsmacked when I saw that. 
Gavin to remember his name off the top of your head? I'm going to tell you. It's Carmel Henry Carfora. Carfora. Okay, okay. And just remember, adding... Carfora, the one that also had the line of succession to uh, Bertrio? Actually, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that wasn't within my scope. Let's uh, just go with yes. Let's just say yes. <laughs> okay, we'll say yes. <laughs> go back to it later. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, and adding to the intrigue here, I was also able to piece together that Walter Profeta, in 1953, this is when he met the Korean diplomat Lim, remember? In 53, Profeta's church, the church he was leading, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, that church had a very close relationship with Thomas Dowling's old Roman Catholic Church. Once again, this is a Causa member, Thomas Dowling's church. Then I'm just going to keep going here, guys. I want to add some more intrigue. If you add on the fact that William F. Buckley was a member of the Knights of Malta, Buckley, remember, I've speculated that Buck, the Buckley Network was behind helping the Moonies get their foothold in the U.S. Then there's William Simon, another Knights of Malta member, who, along with Gene Kirkpatrick and Claire Booth Luce, Luce was also a Knights of Malta. So both Simon and Luce helped the Washington Times establish the Nicaraguan Freedom Fund. John kind of touched on that a little bit before. And then there's Alexander Haig, who I don't think I've talked about in this series. He's a Knights of Malta. And get this. Alexander Haig wrote the foreword to Bohe Pox autobiography. I kid you not, gentlemen. And then how about the Skull and Bones connections to the Moonies? George H.W. Bush, William F. Buckley again, and then there's Bonesman Henry Sloan Coffin. He had relations with the Moonies in the early 70s, right when their anti-communist work was getting off the ground. Oh, and did I mention, this is not a Mooney connection, that the infamous Nazi Reinhard Galen, he was also a Knight of Malta. And then there's General Charles Willoughby, another shikshinny Knight of Malta. Willoughby was apparently connected to the American Coalition for Patriotic Societies, which had an office right across the street from Bohipak. And will you know we're back to back to Connecticut Avenue now, okay? And Willoughby is also potentially potentially connected, maybe through the Shikshini Knights. There's a potential connection to Stepan Bandera, and by extension Yaroslav Stetsko, which leads us right back to Walter Profeta. In a roundabout way, we have like gone around the world here, gentlemen. <laughs> So then when you add all this up, I'm almost done here. I have got to think that there's this big secret society network connected to the Vatican, Nazis, etc. That somehow got its fingers into the moon organization from the beginning. That's why my Walter Profeta hypothesis or theory about the Mooney's origins is something that I just cannot shake, and I don't think I will ever shake it. 
And before I throw it back to you, Recluse, I know I didn't mention Wackle much per se in this answer here, but be assured if someone was given unlimited time to go through a very thorough dot connecting process, you're going to find Wackle players in very key places all over this. Singlob is an obvious one, as you saw. Oh, and by the way, I did find Siglob in the Mooney archives. He attended the Moon-sponsored World Media Association conference. Okay, we're going to have to say Operation Mockingbird here. I mean, Mockingbird never stopped, you know. So, yes, through Kauza and the Washington Times or Bohipox Network, we see Wackle connections that connect all over Iran-Contra for sure. I'm going to take a breath. I'm done for now. All right, just to uh, clarify, um, uh, Bertrio was not part of the same line of succession. Um, Bertrio was part of the Valete, I believe, line of succession uh, or consecration, whatever you want to call it. However, um, interestingly, um, if you're correct about the Kafora, is, is that how it's pronounced, Kafora? I guess. If you're right about the Kafora consecration, um, that would put him within the Matthew line of succession, which is also interesting. Um, one of the bishops who was consecrated in that line was uh, Frederick Samuel Willoughby, who was a prominent theosophist and that helped give rise to the uh, liberal Catholic Church, uh, a sect that the Theosophical Society had set up. Uh, and this is also the line of succession that produced the infamous C.W. Leadbeater, um, who, of course, molested that, what, Messiah, or would-be Messiah, or whatever they had located in India. Christian um, Mutri. Per yeah. Me. Christian yeah. Mutri. His name is pronounced Pudbeater. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that whole wonderful lineage of pedophilia uh, apparently runs through this line of succession and the whole uh, strange thing with the liberal Catholic Church of the Theosophical Society. And also, to bring things uh, back home, apparently another bishop who was consecrated in this line of succession was Ray Ellen Rushbacher. Rushbacher? I'm not sure exactly if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, she would go on to become the wife of Gunther uh, Rushbacher, who was a shadowy figure in the Iran-Contra affair, according to Peter Lavenda. Ah, well. Yes, folks, um, these wandering bishops have a way of turning up in very funny places. All right. Keith. Let's talk about the successor org to the ACWF, the USCFW, the, you know, Judean People's Front's Liberation, whatever. All right. Who are the players here and what was uh, what were some of the other highlights of this group in the 1980s? Well, can I just say thanks to uh, to Don Diligent for for that exposition there? It's just it's just it's just great. I'm going to miss doing these podcasts because I always learn so much from this guy uh and and before i you know trudge forth into this just like take a breath there's so many john uh brisson earlier in this podcast to talk about how complicated it gets by the 80s there's so many different parties out there they're working towards the, some of the same goals they're sometimes at cross purposes but there's so many of them and some of the same names keep coming up and different connotations, but it's just a, 
it, the, the further in time you go, especially during the Reagan years, the harder it gets to wrap your mind around it. But just to orient us, um, you know, we're, we're talking about Republicans here. Okay. <laughs> That's one thing that, you know, all the thread running through the whole thing. So, um, so USCWF stands for United States Council for World Freedom. And, uh, this is the successor to the American Council for World Freedom. And, um, so first I'll just, you know, go a little bit into the money. Uh, Taiwan backed it. It's reported they gave him a loan of $20,000 to get it going. Uh, the Coors family backed it. H.L. Hunt's money was there, along with some other Texas oil business. So you've got like two kinds of lubricant. You've got oil and then also that great American lubricant, uh, Coors beer, uh, present at the creation. Um, uh, John had talked about them raising $100,000 from the CMP at one point. They also did their you know, direct mail fundraising shtick, and they got a lot of money that way. And to that, they added uh, TV preachers. Uh, I remember being a kid and my granny watching the 700 Club all the time and seeing a, a very much younger Pat Robertson. I think he was only like 120 years old back then. Um, he, you know, begging for money from his tele congregation to help support the freedom fighters. And I didn't understand what it meant because I was kind of a kid, but you know, looking back, it's like, Ooh, this, this is gross. But anyway, um, and let's not forget, uh, young men and women out selling peanut brittle on the streets for the Reverend moon. Um, a lot of different, Thanks, yeah, a lot of different funding sources there. Um, so that's some of the money. And not all of it by any means, but that's that's some of it. Um, so you had old and new people on the USCWF board and their advisors. Daniel Graham, who we all just learned some things about. Uh, David Rao, who we've talked about quite a few times. Marks Lewis, the old Kaka Mooney guy. Um, Stefan Pasoni was there. Uh, the Walter Chapuski of the Captain's Nations Committee that we talked about earlier in this podcast. Of course, Lev Dobriansky. A lot of people that we've we've talked about across episodes. So let me zero in on some some kind of new names here. Jay Parker, uh, considered the father of American black conservatism, is on it. Founder of the Lincoln Institute. Um, he was also in the ACWF. So I didn't mention him before, but he's he's there's a through line there. Um, you got Dr. Victor Victor T H Swan. T-S-U-A-N. He's like the chief of the Chinese chapter of National Captive Nations Committee, and you'll see him in the tparents.org website giving talks to uh, overseas Chinese Mooney outreach conferences. Then you've got Reverend Albion Knight Jr., who I think was in the CMP. Uh, this was like an Episcopal bishop who left to join uh, the Episcopal Church of North America. He was a CMP. Is- he was a CMP member, Keith. Yeah, okay. Um uh jump in anytime if any of these any of you guys, if any of these names spark some new connection I didn't make. But uh, you know, we're talking about these splinter churches, the old Roman Catholic, you know, this and that. This is kind of like the Anglican version. Um, Church of England is liberalizing its practices, kind of like Vatican II, but the English version. And so um uh, Albion Knight Jr. is 
going off in his own, you know, more traditionalist direction. And I guess the Episcopal Church in North America was kind of like that. Um, Howard Phillips, who we've kind of mentioned before, uh, big new right figure, CNP, Heritage Foundation, you know, uh, moral majority. He's he's tight with Richard Vigory and Terry Dolan. Um, he's, I think, the guy that one of the people that had the idea to get Jerry Falwell's moral majority going in the 80s. Same same with Council for National Policy. He starts later on after this period something called the U.S. Taxpayers Party, which I'll hopefully, if I remember, I'll come back to later. Um, then you've also got the um, ubiquitous internal security guy, Robert Morris, who, Recluse, you went into – uh, that name at some length when you had John Bellavacqua on your show, right? Um, then you got a political science professor working in Alabama, namely uh, Anthony Kubek, who was like an old China lobby scholar, um, thought Pearl Harbor was in fact a communist plot. And you can find some of his writings through the Institute of Historical Review. Um, Ray Klein was never actually on the uh, the head, letterhead, but he was all up in that, and we've kind of talked about him. You know, he's the he helped set up Chang's Warfare Political Warfare Academy. Um, Kathleen Teague Rothschild, also CNP, also Free Congress Foundation, which we talked about a little bit in our Fourth Generation Warfare podcast a million years ago. Um, she headed up the Virginia chapter of Phyllis Schlafly's Stop the Equal Rights Amendment campaign. And she was also part of the American Legislative Exchange Council. Y'all know who that is, right? They're the ones that make the model legislation that conservatives can just like not even have to think about because it's already written for them. And they just pull it out of the box and, you know, put it up for vote in various legislatures around the country. Sometimes forgetting to take the boilerplate language of Alex, <laughs> you know, logo off of it, <laughs> which if you ever saw that um, – documentary about the 14th amendment and uh the downside of that and what that's meant for black americans um you'll see some of the criminal uh legislation about you know legalizing like private prisons and and three strikes laws and stuff they they actually had somebody accidentally uh forget to take the alec logo off of their their law they were going to bring up but anyway let me get back to the back to the subject um the name everybody recognizes from Wackle, like the guy, the brand, the the icon of Wackle, whose names come up a bunch of times here, is uh, General John K. Singlaub. Singlaub, it's S-I-N-G-L-A-U-B. This is the Cold Warrior Extraordinaire. Um, OSS guy, China Cowboy serving with Ray Klein and Ted Schlackley and all those uh, fabulous MacArthur boys that we've spent so much time talking about in the Pacific Theater. And it's amazing how so often it's like, yeah, he was in the military. Which theater? Pacific. Worked, served under MacArthur. Like, all throughout this whole series. Like, everybody. I mean, Singlob helped with the French Resistance. He was in the Atlantic Theater first. But he finished the war in the Pacific, in the, in the OSS. So, and, and somehow, I, I have, go and, ahead. And somehow he's still alive, um, which yeah. is just, yeah, incredible. Um, but, you know, 
I suppose that's maybe one of the few perks of selling your soul. Oh, or, or just being an absolute hard, badass warrior, you know, his whole life, which, which he totally was, you know, it's like, those guys aren't going to, they're not going to die young. You know, he probably lives about five hours from me right now. He's like up, in, up there in, in the Phoenix area, which I'll come back to as well. Um, yeah, you know, it's weird about like that, that China theater of operations and how so many of these MacArthur boys, they wind up being like in lockstep with this John Birch paranoia, paranoid politics and like the hardcore anti-Semitism of so many of them. <clears throat> and I, I just, I just wonder, you know, the big white Russian communities of like Shanghai and Harbin. And I just wonder if like that had something to do with, with it, but it's, you know, it's a matter for some speculation because so much of that modern conspiranoia stuff and the genesis of like John Birch type thing, it just goes back to like white Russian pre-revolution propaganda, like the protocols and stuff. But back to the subject, anyways, OSS, Shanghai, where they used to, according to Peter Dale Scott, pay their informants and soldiers with like sticky bars of opium at, towards the end of the war because it was like currency. Yeah, um, he ran the Phoenix program in Vietnam for a while. Uh, I've heard reports that he was involved in setting up the Korean CIA. Um, he was in command. He might have even been the commander of all the U.S. Army forces in South Korea and was famously fired by um, the Carter administration for very publicly coming out against Carter's like troop drawdown, you know, efforts in Korea and uh, the Namby Pamby Carter administration that was soft on communism. And this brave warrior had the stones to speak up about it. And for that, these egghead red tape dispensers back in D.C. sacked him. But by sacking him, they freed him up to become Rambo. You know, the Clint Eastwood dirty Harry of, of American foreign policy He's no longer shackled by these. Yeah, these I was going to say he, he would have been more Clint Eastwood, I think, by that point. I, he was already, what, in his like 70s or something by the 80s. I, I don't yeah, I don't know exactly. But, yeah, he was he, a little know. too old to be Rambo at that point. But, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so big uh, you know, so he's like another casualty of this Carter administration. And during this time, this is like the fallout from like the church committee where they, you know, the, our intelligence uh, agencies got downsized and um, Admiral Stansfield Turner uh, becomes CIA director, I think under Carter and he fires a whole bunch more of them. So there's like this mass exodus uh, in our intelligence and in the military, in the case of John Singlaub, that happens in the late 70s. And it all kind of looks like it was a mistake <laughs> at the end, because at least when they worked for the government, there was some like accountability there. But instead, they, they, they start to create this vast, rich, well-experienced, deep, private, you know, mercenary spook industry. Right. And so uh, by the, the late 70s, Singlaub is like, right at the head of this. This is the period of time where the LaRouche people with uh, his old buddy Mitch Warbell, also an OSS China cowboy, 
also of white Russian stock. Um, they're talking and being approached by um, LaRouche's security people who Mitch Warbell was like the head of for a while, talking about, we need a coup. We need a military coup. we got to get the country back on track. And Singlob declines and makes a big show out of how crazy those LaRouche people, the most anti-Semitic bunch of Jews I've ever seen. You know, this is what he says in his autobiography. Um, so that's, that's, a that's a little primer on sing loud. There's probably a lot more, but the point is, this is the guy that becomes the public face of Wackel in the eighties. And he's like the unofficial standard bearer of the vigilante, you know, privatized, uh, foreign policy arm of the Reagan administration in the eighties that if these, these stupid pinko peaceniks in Congress are tying our hands, but thankfully we've got General Jack Singlob to help us out, right? Um, and so he's tr he's traveling in like 79, 80 on American Security Council funded trips down to places like Guatemala with Daniel Graham and meeting with death squad guys like shaking hands and going, hey man, you guys just need to hang in there. The cavalry's on the way. Reagan got elected. And he, Mr. Reagan recognizes that, quote, a lot of dirty work needs to be done, unquote, down here in places like this. And they're like, all right, good. We'll just hang on. We'll hang on. So, <clears throat> yeah, let me, let me get to some of the other parts about, you know, ASCWF. But I want to I want to talk about Larry McDonald for a minute. But. Um, but, yeah, you know, when uh, a few minutes ago. Um, Don was talking about Robert Perry getting hounded to the ends of the earth by uh, the Moonies. Um, uh, it's it's really interesting, kind of the this this PR offensive that happened in the 80s. So we've got the Rambo movies and the wrestling and all that stuff that I talked about before, and I brought it up because it's just uh, like a one facet of like this total spectrum dominance where it's in Hollywood, it's in the newsrooms, you know, this is the period of time when like Fox is getting, you know, trying to get off the ground and Rupert Murdoch, the famous picture of like Roy Cohn introducing Ronald Reagan to Rupert Murdoch and Roy Cohn is standing up kind of lo lo looming over Reagan with his finger pointing at him like, you know, Roy Cohn large and in charge. Um, that's happening during this period of time. And, um, it was something that about the committee for inter-American security that we talked about in the last episode, you know, we talked about them in the context of being like the, the writers of like the first draft of, uh, Ronald Reagan's Latin American foreign policy. But several sources also say that the CIS was running like its own red squad kind of um, uh, go after reporters that are being too honest about what's going on. Uh, and they're just really killing our vibe down in Central America where we're trying to get things done. And these, you know, John Anderson's of the world or Jack Anderson's of the world are, are crimping our style and killing my buzz. And we got to go after them in the press and smear them. And, you know, by the 80s, that kind of stuff um, matures with something that became known as public diplomacy. Um, 
read Irvine's accuracy in media, read Irvine being a founding member of the American Council for World Freedom has got a big role to play in this. Robert Perry wrote a book in the 90s called Lost History, the CIA, the Contras, Iran-Contra, and Project Truth that gets into how you know, the so-called liberal media was brought to heel by the Reagan administration and its CIA with its brand spanking new thing called the Office of Public Diplomacy. So Reed Irvine, this new thing called the Washington Times, um, the CIS Red Squad, Borsgrave, Ray Klein, all these people, they went to war, <laughs> uh, public, you know, like propaganda war against having an accurate accounting of just how brutal these dirty wars in the 80s really were. The idea being to, you know, shape American public opinion and, as Noam Chomsky would put it, manufacture consent, right? So people like Ray Klein, Michael Ledeen, who's a name that we all probably know because I think he's Michael Flynn's biographer. It's weird, but he's still around. Uh, People like that, they went to work building up this cottage industry of literature painting all the terrorism as coming from Moscow. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from Henrik Kruger, the guy that wrote The Great Heroin Coup, and one of the early people to start really reporting on Wackle in like the left alternative press in like the late 70s. I think this is from 1980. Um, goes like this. Uh, Ray S. Klein helped formulate the Reagan administration's Soviets behind all terrorism claim which Klein elaborated on at a 1980 meeting of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, which, by the way, Marvin Liebman helped set up, but I digress. Quote, according to uh, investigative reporter Jeff Stein, not all of Klein's colleagues were in agreement. At the back of the room, in an angry whispered exchange during a break in the panel, a red-faced Howard Bain, recently retired as the CIA's chief of terrorism, Department spat out, we've got to get Klein off this Moscow control of terrorists. It's divisive. It's not true. There's not a single bit of truth to it. I should know, Bain said, waving his hand. I was just there a few days ago. So this other former CIA colleague, um, you know, kind of nods in agreement and says, it's, this is that far right stuff. It's horse shit, you know. So, and this is great. Henry Kruger says, Klein's emphasis on Moscow's control of world terrorism was calculated like phony estimates of missile strength to produce a, quote, terrorism gap that would basically create the need for, well, we've got to close the terrorism gap, uh, so we need more terrorism, you know, and and get agencies like political policing apparatus like uh, Operation Chaos and COINTELPRO. You know, we need to bring that stuff back. We need to bring House on american activities back, you know. Um, I have a couple of Ray Klein's books, actually. One of them is called, you know, Terrorism, the Soviet Connection. And so it's just like in the 50s and 60s, you know, there's a book about the China lobby coming out that's talking about drug trafficking. And so the ASC is like, we need to put out the thing about the communists are behind the drugs. And uh, he's talking about the China lobby having an influence on American policy. And it's like, we need to have a book about the red China influence on, America, you know. So we're doing all this gladio terrorism and lighting up Western Europe. And it's it's pretty obvious that the, the forces of the, the right, not always the far right, the far right being a tool, okay, the center right wanted this stuff too, okay? 
Suzanne Labine was not a Nazi, but she was pro Gladio. So anyway, um, you got to have a book saying it's all the Russians doing it. You know, it's just like today. If it's like you want to do a deep state coup and take over the deep state, you have to accuse somebody of running a deep state coup against you. So now it's a counter coup. See, it's defense. So I digress. Uh, but when in, uh, in 1981, John Singlaub is like announcing that he's getting the band back together. The U.S. Wackle chapter is coming back after the uh, the public relations disaster that we talked about last time with Roger Pearson, who, by the way, apparently handed off Wackle in the United States to like a Klansman named Elmore Greaves, like a Mississippi segregationist guy. And I haven't been able to find a whole lot about what Wackle in America looked like under this, but that's like who uh, Roger Pearson passed the torch to is like one last like, fuck you, you know. Uh, anyway, that was a short lived thing. And here comes Singlob. He's going to get the whole thing back going. Right. And so he's meeting in Phoenix with a bunch of, uh, donors, uh, new right. I mean, far right guys and conservatives and potential funding sources and whatever. And he's announcing his new strategy. And this is, this is what he says saying this is what we need to do when we get our new Wackle chapter going. And he says, quote, the term unconventional warfare includes, in addition to terrorism, subversion, and guerrilla warfare, such covert and non-military activities as sabotage, economic warfare, support to resistance groups, black and gray psychological operation, disinformation activities, and political warfare. We find ourselves forced into inactivity because we lack the capability and the will to exercise this third option for our own defense, to take pressure off an ally, or to exploit to our advantage the many vulnerabilities that now exist in the Soviet empire. What is needed as a matter of urgency is a national strategy which recognizes the whole spectrum of potential conflict, and most especially the current unrecognized conflict at the unconventional warfare end of the scale. So there's an American general on American soil saying, we need terrorism. <laughs> we need black operations and black propaganda, you know, and I, it, it's realistic. You know, it's like, you know, do you want to win or not? You know, because if you want to win, it's like, what is the old saying? You want it fast, cheap or well done, you know, pick two. Right. So he's like, let's have fast and well. <laughs> uh it ain't going to be cheap, but it's going to we're going to bury them into the ground um, and pulling out all the dirty tricks. And. Uh, yeah, so kind of it's just crazy to see somebody, you know, saying something like that. But but that's that was that was the 80s. I told you it sucked. Um, and so that's what his newly minted United States Council for World Freedom uh, did all over the world. Um, and it was not just in Latin America. It was Afghanistan. It was Southeast Asia. It was the Philippines, several different countries in Africa. But he inherited this PR problem. We went over this before. You know, the league had required this bad rap for letting in a bunch of Nazis. So Singlob had to make this showing of cleaning up Wackel's image in the United States. And he put together this policy document that they called the Tabernash Report that was intended to kind of put Singlab's wackle 
on the record as having no tolerance for any of that stuff. Um, he invited the Anti-Defamation League to become observers of league activities and to monitor them for anti-Semitism. And that caused some of the ADL uh, rank and file from their own left flank to kind of scratch their heads because the ADL had itself uh, given Wackel a very bad bill of health just a couple of years before. And now suddenly it's like, yep, they're, they're good now. They're, they're fine. And it was, it was pretty obvious that it was a whitewash. Um, and one critic said, you know, I don't know how the ADL developed such amnesia in such a short period of time, but it worked as far as like the American press and, and, you know, kind of like, uh, public diplomacy, we're calling it now, uh, you know, the propaganda kind of worked. They even expelled the Tecos and the CAL, the, the, uh, the Latin American Anti-Communist Confederation, they, they, they kicked them out. Um, but what really they just, it's just like all the other things like, all right, well, we've been kicked out. Let's now call ourselves the Judean people's front instead of the people's front of Judea and like rejoin. Right. <laughs> so that's what they did. They, uh, the CAL people kind of dispersed and then formed a new regional affiliate called the Federation of Latin American Democratic Entities. <laughs> and rejoined as the um, Latin American regional affiliate replacing CAL. But El Salvador, and, Guatemala, and, uh, and Honduras said no, and they refused to join it. So interesting. Um, so the USCWF, you know, instead of having like this dis- disastrous like uh, Nazi circle jerk thing like they'd had in like 1978 under Roger Pearson. Now they're having like nice, good press. Uh, they're advertising these things. They have a couple of conferences in San Diego in 84 and in Dallas in 85. And, um, and so at the San Diego one in 84, they had reps from all these countries undergoing these peasant rebellions and communist insurgencies and, like Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam and Afghanistan and of course Nicaragua and the USCWF is doing like these uh, fundraising drives like Operation Boots on the Ground to buy boots and clothing for Contra and other freedom fighters and they're trying to stress the non-lethal aid part of it but obviously you know talk to my man over here we can also do guns and ammo and and sometimes they were pretty plain about just like, we need ammo. And they're like at the podium at the mic being like, we need a helicopter, man. I, 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 you know, we're good on boots. We're good on band-aids, bullets, bullets. Um, so uh, they got some of those humanitarian supplies, like cheap prices, you know, Korean sweatshop labor went to make a lot of clothing. And don't you know, it just makes me think, you know, things, but uh, anyway, a lot of those uh, pleas for, for that non-lethal support, they're coming right alongside like, yes, we also need rocket launchers and machine guns and recoilless rifles. And Robert Brown, Soldier of Fortune magazine, meanwhile, is advertising, you know, recruitment flyers for mercenaries to go to these hotspots in his magazine. And it's like this developing cottage industry that it really got going after Vietnam of sort of recycling Vietnam vets into these new anti-communist struggles. And um the book I referred to last time by Kyle Burke, Revolutionaries for the Right, actually talks quite a bit about that. But uh, so the next year in Dallas, the Afghan Mujahideen 
you know, they've got Reagan saying, you guys are just like the original American Patriot freedom fighters. Like, no, they're not. But okay. Uh, they're straight up asking for stinger missiles from the podium at these wacko conferences. And apparently that's when they started getting them. And you get these like friends of Osama bin Laden, pro Afghan freedom fighter groups that are popping up in association with, with, uh, with the American wackle people at this time. And, you know, if you're old enough to remember the period right after nine 11, where people in the U S like me were kind of like scratching their heads at like pictures of Reagan meeting with these Afghan freedom fighters in the, in the white house. And it's like, Whoa, this is those, that's the guy that did nine 11. You know, this is the period of time when that, that relationship you know, that creates what later becomes the Taliban and Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. It's like, this is the genesis of that. Um, during, during the eighties when the Afghan war is going on, which is just, just crazy how, like you said at the beginning, recluse, all these things come home, right? Everything, all all the shit we start everywhere else in the world, (laughs) it eventually makes its way back to where it started. So, um, so anyway, you know, after the Vietnam War ended in Southeast Asia, it magically started to become harder to get heroin in the United States. So in like 79, you know, Z-Big uh, talks Carter into trying to draw the Soviets into this war in Afghanistan that was supposed to be their, their Vietnam and we're going to bankrupt them and, you know, lock them down in a proxy war. And, uh, yeah, and then when Reagan comes into power, he really ramped that war up, and Wackel really helped. And heroin once again exploded on American street drug markets. It wasn't just cocaine. That drug got all the press. But it was also heroin. Um, and just like after 9-11, you know, sudden surge in cheap opiates in the 80s was somehow linked with that proxy war in Afghanistan. Uh, and the weird thing is that the, the tail end of like the second printing of Alfred McCoy's book, Politics of Heroin. It's coming out right as this Afghan war thing is, is getting going in like 79 or 80. And so Alfred McCoy, and it's either 79 or 80, I can't remember. He's, he's saying like, you know, these guys, these, uh, these warlords, Heck Matiar, I can't remember the name of them, Gold Bafinar, whatever they're called. You know, he's like, these, these guys are, Pakistan ISI supported heroin traffickers. And if you're going to get into uh, a, this war with the Soviet Union, you're going to just repeat what happened in Vietnam <laughs> all over again. So stop or, or get ready for a lot of cheap heroin, America. And sure enough, that's like what happened. And it's like literally he warned everybody. And not only did nobody care, but in, inside the league. This is I've mentioned this before. It's like the glaring oversight of that book. They didn't mention anything about Alpha Alpha McCoy's book. He could have told them the KMT was trafficking heroin in the Vietnam era. That would have been important to put in inside the league, but they didn't. It's the same thing with Afghanistan and the heroin thing. Alpha McCoy's talking about it before it even happened, saying this is about to happen. But I digress. Uh, I don't want to throw too much shade on inside the league. It really holds up good. For, for, for all its flaws. But anyway, back to Wackel. Um, during this time, there's like this whole vast network that I was talking about how complicated it is to, to track all of them, you know, and it's 
it's the rollback program. It's not detente. It's not peaceful coexistence. It's light them up like a Christmas tree everywhere, all over the world, all at once. And let's do it fast and well, not cheap, right? Pick two. Um, so I just want to bring up one facet of it. And this is something that they used to call the torture lobby. So let me get into that a little bit. Uh, there was a group called Black Manafort Stone and Kelly, a lobbying firm that like went to bat for people like Jonas Savimbi of Angola and Mobuto Seiko of the Congo or Zaire. Um, and yes, that would be Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Charles Black, who, who advised the presidential campaigns of both John McCain, who was in Wackel, by the way, uh, during this period, um, and George W. Bush campaigns. Uh, and and uh, Charles Black actually worked on John Kasich's uh, campaign in 2016. Yeah, and this that was like the flagship of what they called the torture lobby at the time on account of how brutal some of these African dictators were. And this is a period of time when Stone is affiliated with Nick Pack, and he's been around a long time. And apparently he's not done yet, and apparently neither is Manafort. But um, I digress. I like history rather than current events. But uh Later on in the decade, um, Wackel is uh, increasingly being like exposed as Reagan's deep state. 85, you have Dave Emery's series on Wackel coming out. Inside the League comes out in 1986, right about the time the dead Kennedys were sadly breaking up and the Iran-Contra stuff was getting ready to break open. And uh, and the American Wackel guys, USCWF, they got under scrutiny because they were playing a little little cl too close to the sun and they wind up getting audited by the irs in the 80s and this is around like the same time that john singlaub and the soldier of fortune guys and the john birch society guys are like chartering boats and making like an expedition company to go dig up yamashita's golden lily gold in the philippines and this is stuff you can read about in seagrave's book it's it's just gold warriors but it it's weird. And, the, you know, these expeditions are seen as like a failure now. But I don't know, because it's like this is the same period of time when Singlaub is running death squads in the Philippines, like hardcore Christian death squads. And I got these CIA like press readouts when I did these FOIAs like four years ago, five years ago. Um and it's great. You do a FOIA and like sometimes like the CIA will just send you a whole bunch of like translated one after the other transcribed computer, you know, rendered um, readouts of all these different uh, newspaper articles that they just plug into their database. And so I got this from the CIA years ago and was like, wow, I, I it's like they collected the stuff from all over the world, from Russia, from the Philippines and whatever, and they just give it to you and. It was awesome. So anyway, uh, Singlaub, you know, the Philippine press is reporting during this period that he's running these death squads and and some of these uh, leaders, I can't remember the names of them right now, but it talks about the LaRouche people and the Moon people being in the same room with Singlaub while they're arranging some of this stuff. You know, so this is like the period of time where he's running these expeditions to try to get this gold and it's chronicle, but it also like this other things going on. So like, was like the gold thing a cover for that? Yeah, I, I don't know, but it's just some odd uh, goings on 
um, during that period. And speaking of odd, I want to digress for a minute about one of Singlob's buddies who, just as a researcher who loves like the weird aspects of this stuff, I wish Larry McDonald didn't die in 1983, but he did. He got shot down in a plane with like 200 and something other passengers flight 007 in like September of 83. And everybody was like, that's it. The deep state killed him. Some people said the deep state killed him here because he was like kind of secretly low key anti Reagan. Like Reagan didn't go far enough. Hey, Hey, Hey Keith, what's your opinion on McDonald's death or assassination? Like I can still not figure that one out. Well, um, I'll I'll just put it this way. Some some reports have it that the reason he got he happened to be on the plane that got shot down. Uh he he was actually scheduled to go on the previous flight and that flight got delayed or something. So he he wound up not even getting on the plane that he had planned to get onto. So according to that rendering um you know, if you had like Intel, Larry McDonald's going to be on this plane. Let's shoot it down. Well, he actually wasn't on that plane. He was on this other plane because he like he missed his flight or got had to get maintenance or something. I can't remember. Um, it wandered into Soviet airspace. And there was some problem with his transponder. And it was dark outside. <laughs> you know, um, I've heard all kinds of theories. The pilot was under mind control. Uh, the, the, all the other 200 and something people that were on the flight, um, were just fine as casualties. Cause at least they got Larry McDonald and that's what the Russians really wanted. And I've, like I said, other people say it was actually Reagan and Bush that wanted it because Reagan wasn't right wing enough for Larry McDonald. And I've seen some of his correspondence where he's asking for money from some wealthy heiress. And she's pushing back on him going, hey, I like Reagan. And he's like, whoa, 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 I like Reagan too. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. But if you look at these policies, you know, he's a little little too trilateral for me, you know, blah, blah, blah. So if you read Inside the League, it talks about some elements of Wackel being like kind of grumbling, like Reagan is probably the best we're going to be able to do. But damn it, he doesn't go far enough. Like, no, no, you know, anything short of like fire up the ovens is not going to be enough for some right wing people, right? Um, the point is no matter what happened, if there's a perfectly rational explanation for this tragic shoot down, and it was, you know, um, it won't matter because it becomes conspiracy fodder regardless. You know, we have a martyr. They called him the first casualty of world war three, which was the John Birch society rehashing its original slogan <laughs> for John Birch. The yeah, guy they yes, it was yes. namesake, right? So it's like they already said he you already used that first casualty of World War Three. It was fifty years ago. Now you now now it's this guy. You know. So I don't know what the truth is, but if I've learned anything with all this, the truth doesn't matter. The story, the narrative you can spin and the butts you can get out of chairs off of that narrative matter a lot more than facts to a lot of people. So that's my take on what did or didn't happen. What's what can be said for sure is that he died. And I kind of wish that he didn't because, you know, because I don't want people to die, first of all. And second of all, just it would be it would have been better to just watch where this guy's career went. 
you know, because he was just just a maniac. Okay, uh, so he was on the USCWF uh, board. He joined in '82, okay, a year before he died. So there's an article on Politico, and I'll invite your listeners to be Google it. Um, uh, the congressman who had his own deep state, really, I think is the title, built his own deep state. Um, this is the guy that actually was Robert Welch's successor heading up the John Birch Society. And he used to cruise around D.C. in a black Mercedes Benz with JBS1 and vanity plates. Just just awesome. Right. Um, uh, he was a urologist. Which, like his fellow arch rightist Paul, Ron Paul, you know, Ron Paul's like a gynecologist, and Larry McDonald's a urologist. It's, it's just kind of an odd thing. Um, and he got in trouble. He got sued pretty bad in the late 70s because he was pushing this alternative uh, medicine called Latrail, 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 amygdalin is the other word for it, which I think comes from like fruit pits like apricots and apple seeds and it turns to cyanide in your body apparently and it'll kill you but it will it was it was pushed as like this it's regarded as a quack sort of medicine alternative medicine cure for cancer amagaldin okay i think you probably know a little bit more about about that you know subject because i know that's different kinds of of medicine is, is your bag john but it wasn't. Yeah, legal. I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Latrell for cancer, for even alternative cancer. Uh, I think Rick Simpson oil, THC laden, you know, CBD oil is way more effective and more scientifically based. So. Yeah, and it doesn't turn into cyanide when you metabolize it, so that's probably a plus, right? So anyway, he he got in trouble for uh, for pushing that on cancer patients, and a lot of people still wanted it after it was banned by the FDA, and Larry McDonald could hook you up with it. But when you paid him, you had to write a checkout to the campaign of Larry McDonald for Congress, <laughs> which is known as campaign finance fraud and illegal prescription of banned medicines. So you got both of those going on. And then if you want to like go for a third round, that's it's just got that's it's it's just amazing. It's like uh, on the one hand, it's a way to kill cancer patients who are theoretically a burden on the American taxpayer because of the medical costs. And simultaneously raise money for his his campaign. Um, oh, but let, let, let me raise you one because here's how we make it a perfect home run. Okay, so now you're one of Larry's uh, cancer patients. You're taking the light trail or whatever it's called, and it's hastening your exit from the burden of the state or whatever. And now here's Dr. McDonald saying, "Hey, can you sign like five or six of these gun buy applications for me?" Right. So then Larry McDonald can go buy a gun with recluse's signature on it, and then you die, and that gun is, you know, kind of like unofficial now. And so Larry McDonald amassed quite an arsenal of small arms uh, by having his cancer patients sign stacks of gun applications. So put all three of those together, and it's like, holy shit. That is like a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, I mean, he can also, you know, yeah, I mean, make a racket on the side selling untraceable firearms. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. So, 
So I mean, you know, he was thrifty. I mean, you got to give him that. Jeez, man. So, yeah, this is in that Politico article. Um, you should just check it out. But um, but do you guys listen to the Conspiracy Normal podcast? I know you do, Recluse. Um, Dr. Future. I never miss an episode when Dr. Future's on. And he did his New Year's, like, recap that he always does apparently every year with the, with the guys at Conspiracy Normal, right? And so he's talking about the what is it called americans physicians for truth or what, what were those guys called the ones that had the white coat summit on the steps of the capitol um pushing the hydroxychloroquine uh, uh, america's frontline doctors with uh, america's frontline doctors Gold, who was just simone gold was just arrested for being at the capitol uh, dun, right. dun, dun. <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah. So <laughs> America's frontline doctors and they're pushing like the malaria, like boner pill, whatever is like a cure for COVID. Hydroxychloroquine, which has horrible side effects associated with it. Look up the Quinism Foundation. Um, there are other medications that can be used for the treatment of COVID-19, uh, even though I'm no fan of Redemzivir either. But uh, yeah, hydroxychloroquine, it's, not, it's for zinc ionophore. There's better stuff that can be used. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, you're just, fine. I'm, I'm going off the subject. American doctors just really up, freaking upsets me. So, oh, I'm thankful for them. I am thankful for them. Stella Emanuel, the demon semen doctor, the Cameroon Pentecostalist, talking about spiritual warfare in very like more warfare, less New spiritual. New Apostolic Reformation, website. not Pentecostal. Absolutely, yes, New Apostolic Reformation, Pentecostal weirdness, all the way up and down. And I'm on Facebook, and people I know. Are saying, hey, let's let her, let's give her some space. I think she might have a point. You know, I, I'd, I'd sooner believe in alien transmitted uh, DNA uh, and demonic possession being sexually transmitted than I would believe big pharma any day. And I'm like, well, I'm done here. I guess I get to get off Facebook now. That's the end. Of <laughs> so thank you, Stella Emanuel, for finally breaking my brain. Um, yeah, pharmaceutical companies, by Prosperity, the way, Prosperity as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she's from Houston, my town. So hey, anyway, um, let yeah, me get back if you, to the point. If you heard the uh, the podcast with David Medcalf uh, about the um, fascination some branches of the uh, New Apostolic Reformation have with the uh, Moravian Church, um, you know the side holes working in there too, Keith. Oh yeah, in McDonald's. With the pseudonymous it seems about right. Mm. Yes, oh. yes, yes. One of the successors of the SOSJ. Yes, yes, yes. All kinds of fascinating things. Yeah, I'm actually, if I can get off of my own stupid tangent, I'm going to actually get to that. But my point, just to wrap this part up, there's like this medical auxiliary of the John Birch Society that Dr. Future's talking about that gave a lot of favorable press to America's frontline doctors last year. And they're called the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, which sounds very official. And it's very much not. And all of these quack doctors over the years, they'll sign up for these bold. And I, it, you should just you should just go listen to that podcast or go to his two spies report blog, Dr. Futures blog, and just read all about it. Crazy, uh, like medical lobby paid uh, propagandists. You know, asbestos is good for you. It's almost as healthy for you as smoking, but. Not quite, but it's still good for, you know, like these are these guys, like I'm a doctor and I'm a member of the American Association of Physicists, Physicians and Surgeons. And 
I eat asbestos for breakfast every morning and I couldn't feel better, you know. And, and so Larry McDonald was a member of that. So was Ron Paul. So is Rand Paul, by the way, um, the guy saying all the crazy stuff on TV these days as a U.S. senator about like just opposite COVID, just just weird stuff that he says. Anyway, let me get back to the point. The urologist Larry McDonald was a member in good standing. Okay. And he was a gold bug and he wore a bulletproof vest all the time. And, you know, <laughs> he was really worried about the intelligence capabilities of the Carter administration, you know, after like kind of neutered our capabilities. Oh, one more factoid about Larry McDonald before I move, move on and get to the point. Remember in the MRA episode, we're talking about the guy that inherited moral rearmament when Frank Buckman died. It was Peter Howard, the, the British fascist guy that was like married couples shouldn't have sex. Remember that? I don't know if you remember that, but Larry McDonald apparently told his first wife, you know, we're at war and, and, and people do not make love in wartime. So kind of had that weird thing going on. But um, in response, like he really wanted the house and uh, un-American activities uh, to get restarted in the late seventies. He had that total paranoia about the communist conspiracy within, you know, he's like died in the wool, John Birch guy. And, you know, Carter had neutered our intelligence capabilities. So while a sitting congressman, Larry McDonald, starts up Western goals, and he starts it up with um, kind of this spook propagandist informant guy uh, named John Reese. Um, and Western goals fit right into that tradition of like American private red squads and like private anti-communist domestic security operations that like American Vigilante Intelligence Federation or the American Security Council. It's like right in there. And Roy Cohn, of all people, was part of this. And so was Edward Teller, whose names come up a couple times. So was John Singlau and the far right oligarch Roger Milliken were also all part of Western goals. OK, this gets started in like 79, I think. So they also had a British and a West German branch. And it looks like the Germans funded a good deal of like the whole operation. And they would put out these private intelligence reports to their subscribers. And apparently they got these reports into the hands of like the DEA and the CIA and the ATF and the FBI and cop shops at all levels across the land. Um, and they compiled and compiled and compiled like people working round the clock, entering all the information that they were gathering on people into these computers that they had networked in the early, early days of, of computer networks. This is like if you read Yasha Levine's Surveillance Valley and like the Internet was built as a as like to, to support the Phoenix program <laughs> and <laughs> collect files on people in case you had to go kill them or do tricks to them or whatever. Yeah. So Western goals was doing this in like the early eighties before any, the, the word internet really existed. Okay. And they got dinged for it in like early 1983 because they were illegally holding and acquiring a bunch of uh, red squad files from the LAPD that it were supposed to have been destroyed in the, in the mid seventies, but they like had a mole in the LAPD and instead of destroying him, he had him in his garage and he's typing, typing, typing all the stuff into their computer networks. 
and it's going to Western Goals office in Virginia, right? And the LAPD knew it was happening and they not only, you know, kept it under wraps, but they had access to the Western Goals computer network uh, from the LAPD headquarters. And they were like feeding info into the network and they were getting fed info from the network and all these police departments across the country could tap into this and for, for a fee, of course. So, so that's Larry McDonald who joined the U.S. Council for World Freedom around the same time he got control of the John Birch Society like a year before he died. But I've been going on a long time. Just, just stick with me. I'm sorry. There's more to the story, okay? I got a few years ago access to a bunch of Larry's papers from from a university in Georgia. And when you go into these papers, like it was because of the World Anti-Communist League thing that I went looking because I knew he was part of it. But whenever you go put in a request for some archive, you always want to like pick something off the beaten path just as like a wild card. Recluse, I've, I've told you this because you never know what it'll turn up. So I see this folder, Order of St. John. I'm like, all right, let's see what that's about. It's like some secret society thing. Let's let's find out. And uh, holy shit, man. Larry McDonald was member of like at least two of what they call the self-styled orders of chivalry, Sovereign Order St. John, uh, successor or maybe like parallel organizations to the Shikshini Knights, which was kind of wrapping up around this time because Charles Pitchell died. And it's a subject that's come up in these podcasts a few times. Um, and Recluse, you've written more about it than, than most people will ever know. Um, but there's one that has this supposed like King Peter II of Yugoslavia. It's his royal patron. And that one might be the one that's Pichel's order. I can't keep them. I can't keep them straight. And I'm not even trying for, for this context. But there was another one out of Houston, Texas, the Battenberg Order. And then there's the uh, no on the uh, on the King Peter one. The King Peter one actually, I think, broke with Pitchell like around seventy two or something like that. Um, it was one of the like I said, you you know more about it than I do. Um, but just on the synchronicity side of things, this is so freaking weird. The the Ohio order that he was part of was headed up by somebody named Peter Bunnell whose obituary praises him for having raised John Singlaub, Alexander Haig, and Larry McDonald into knighthood. So that's something crazy. But if you look at if you look at that guy's obituary, you'll see Bonnell was head of a company called Trump Plastics. I'm like, what? And they make this they made this stuff called Trumpetware in the 60s and 70s. And it was some kind of like durable hard plastic that was like dishwasher safe or something. And he had acquired the company from a Donald A. Trump. <laughs> like, what? What the hell? So I, I, I looked and I looked and I looked and I found out you know, there's no relation. Okay, the guy, his father's name was started with an E. I can't remember. Um, you know, the guy had some somebody Trump started with an E. He started a he was a blacksmith that started like a rubber company that he sold to Goodyear tires later on and then started a plastic company that he left to his son, Donald A. Trump, from whom Peter Bonnell then acquires it off the subject. Trump plastics. I, it just, it, it blew my mind, but cause you know, Donald Trump would be like John Birch society, like wet dream presidential candidate. So 
you know, you had to look into it. El no Trump, E L N O Trump. Well, well Alex, Alex, Joe, Alex Jones says he was. He was a Western Goals, and Larry McDonald be proud of him. He was a John Birch Society president. Did he say Donald Trump was in Western Goals? No, he Damn. said that he would be a Western Goals minded oh. president. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, if you have to have a mind first. But anyway, well, I mean, uh, political yeah, mentor. Yeah, Fred Trump, just like uh, Alex Jones's dad, was reading Western Goals, and they mm. understood. Got it. Does not surprise me, especially with that Roy Cohn link. Um, anyway, let me get back to it. Uh, Bonnell, you know, in in '81, he sends this this uh, program to Larry McDonald, um, and it's from the American Pistol and Rifle Association Rendezvous of 1981, and there's a copy of the program. McDonald's paper sent to him by Bonnell. And it's like a paramilitary training retreat. They have like range time scheduled and there's classes on surviving in the wilderness and which plants you can eat and how to survive a nuclear attack, how to quote, create a defeat psychology. In other words, psychological warfare. And there's an hour long intro into the order of St. John of Jerusalem, presumably as a recruitment. And presiding over much of this is a Dr. John Grady OSJ. Now, I'll invite your listeners to Google John Grady Patcon, P-A-T-C-O-N, and I'll just digress, okay? You can look it up yourself, but Shikshini Knight, um, Pedro Del Valle in the 50s and 60s is a member of the Shikshini Knights and a bunch of other right-wing groups, and he's setting up paramilitary networks across the country. He's sending checks to the Minutemen, you know. And here's Larry McDonald being part of this order that's kind of tied in with the paramilitary patriot right here like 30 years later, 20 years later. It's freaking weird, okay? I'm going to leave it there on that part. But um, So let me get back to the USCWF. And, well, I did. I already talked about the money. Maybe, maybe I'm done. Maybe I'm done. But I, I, mentioned, uh, I mentioned a bunch of this stuff. I think I'm good, man. Yeah, I left the McDonald's stuff for the end because I wanted to talk about the wackle thing, but you can edit me just trailing off into oblivion out of this uh, moss if you want. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Um, so, yeah, the Order of St. John is another one of these strange entities that you see lurking on the outskirts of wackle, and that is significant, as I've kind of alluded to many times, which I'll get into in a forthcoming book. Um, they really were sort of the head of what was effectively the American stay behind or Gladio, whatever you want to call it, uh, essentially fulfilling the role of propaganda Dewey here in the United States. McDonald's crucial to this. Um, and it's just sort of part of a broader framework that was unfolding uh, with these death squads that Wackle was setting up overseas. I mean, a lot of this also had links to the Phoenix program. We've, of course, talked about Condor being set up in the 1970s, and it was finally really coming to fruition in the 1980s. Um, so we've covered a lot of this in the death squads, but there are still a few other interesting aspects of all the stuff in the 1980s. So we will be back again for one final Wackle show, part uh, eight, and we will finally tie things up with a few odds and sods and have everybody here give us their closing thoughts on the legacy of this monstrous outfit. And with that, I'm going to sign off for now. So to all of you out there, good night and good luck. <laughs>